just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. How should we calibrate our fab bids? I'll ask Derek Carty and Zach Waxman about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 5th. It's show number 15 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have two feature expert interviews. First, with Derek Carty from The Bat and The Bat X Projection Systems, discussing how he projects new young pitchers, about playing the odds in fab bidding, and his boons and banes for this weekend's fab run. And later, I'll talk with Zach Waxman from the Draft Champions podcast about his weekly NFBC fab reviews and his boons and banes for this weekend's fabbing. We'll also have our weekly fantasy news update with Ray Murphy, co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com, looking at American League hitters Jake Berger and Adelise Garcia, and the pitching rotations in Seattle and Cleveland, as well as the bullpen in Tampa. We'll also talk about National League hitters Matt Mervis and Nick Castellanos, and the rotations in Los Angeles and Arizona. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the guys at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon looks at Reds third base prospect Christian Encarnacion Strand and shortstop prospect Matt McLean. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Seattle right-handed starter Bryce Miller. We'll be talking a lot about Bryce Miller on this show. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about why I miss the Vickery system in fab bidding. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's a busy show. It's a busy fab weekend. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Derek Carty from The Bat and The Bat X Projection Systems, Derek, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. The last time I saw you was in New York for the Tout National League draft on Sunday morning. How are you doing in that league? No comment. Um, <laughs> it's it's not a great year so far. Uh, I've dealt with some injuries, uh, just underperformances. You know, I had Justin Verlander. Um, I've had, uh, Joe Musgrove on the, on the aisle to start the year, which I knew going in, I lost Hanniger. It's just been, uh, not the best year so far. Uh, oh, I drafted Jake McCarthy. That was fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jake McCarthy was everybody's darling. I have, uh, I had, uh, Joe Musgrove in one league as well. And gosh, for a while there, first he drops a, a kettlebell on his foot and, and that costs him three weeks or whatever it was. 
And then he trips over a baseball or trips over his own shoelace on the way back while he was at a rehab assignment. And there's another weak shot. And then he got killed in Mexico City. So it hasn't been a good year for Joe Musgrove or for anybody who has him on the roster. The Mexico City thing killed me because uh, for some reason I left Musgrove in my lineup for Mexico City. But I benched Alex Cobb because he had had a double start week, but one was in Mexico City. One was against, I think, the Astros. And uh, Musgrove got killed, and Cobb did great in both of those starts. So, yeah, it's it's been rough. Um, my other leagues have been pretty similar. Um, I don't play in a lot. I play in three leagues now. I play in Tat Wars, I play in Labor, and I play in one other um, with, a, with a bunch of industry people. And it's been a pretty similar story in all of them. Um, so hopefully we're able to turn things around. It's still early, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. When you're considering your status in in a particular league, at what point in the season do you start thinking that where you are is where you're going to end up and that the prospects of moving in either direction are getting more and more limited? What's the timeline for that? I don't think there's an exact timeline, but generally by like June, you know, middle to end of June, that's where I'm, I'm starting to feel like, you know, my team is, is more or less stabilizing, you know, unless I have a guy that, you know, I was expecting to be out, you know, maybe I drafted, I didn't this year, but let's say you drafted Bryce Harper, you know, you're not expecting him to come back until June. I guess, he, you know, he's back earlier now, but that kind of thing where, you know, you kind of went in knowing you were going to be at a disadvantage to start off with, but otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm still giving it at least another month, month and a half, two months before I'm, I'm really worrying or anything. Or on the flip side, when you start realizing that you do have a good team, I have one team that's currently leading and, you know, it is early and there's still huge swings in the, in the points totals. Guys are going up and down by 12, 13 points, category points every night. And so you yeah. don't, you, you can't really rest on your laurels and think, well, here we go. But um, Ron Chandler used to say it was Memorial Day when he started thinking, you know, this team has a reasonable chance of succeeding or this team has a really good chance of being like a second division team and there's not much you can do about it at that point. Of course, you still keep trying. But uh, yeah, I think it's interesting that irrespective of where you think you are, the timeline narrows in the sense that you can still micromanage your spot within whatever tier you're in, but at a certain point it gets harder and harder to jump the tiers. Yeah, absolutely it does. So, you know, with any luck, by the time Memorial Day rolls around, my team will be looking a lot better, but we'll have to see. (laughs) Do you have any batters in common across your three teams that have been pleasant surprises? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I've certainly had a few. I mean, I don't have, you know, like, 15 or 20 teams the way a lot of, you know, NFP, NFBC people do. But uh, I drafted uh, Jihuan Bay in Tout Wars reserve rounds, and he has been a very pleasant surprise, uh, especially because he was basically free and he's been awesome for stolen bases. He's basically found himself a full-time role. So that's been, that's been one of my, my lone bright spots. How about pitchers? Vince Velasquez, I drafted in labor reserves. So he's been a really nice surprise as well. You know, I can kind of plug him in when he has a good start and he's been pretty valuable for me. Whether we look at your own leagues or coverage in social media and in the news media, the fantasy sports media, what have you seen this season that has surprised you? The main thing I guess that's been a surprise is that 
the the league environment, you know, run environment has has shifted pretty dramatically this year, which I think we expected to a certain extent, knowing that they were changing rules and that sort of thing. You know, going into the year, I think well, at least I expected stolen bases were going to be way up and and they have been. So I wouldn't say that's necessarily a surprise to some who weren't paying as much attention in the preseason. Maybe it has been. But in addition to just stolen bases, just overall offense has been up. You know, strikeouts are down, home runs are way up. And whether this has to do with a crackdown on sticky stuff, whether it has to do with the ball being different, uh, that's definitely been, I don't know about a surprise because it seems like the environment and the ball fluctuate every single year, but we never know what it's going to be going in. And it's certainly been different than kind of my average expectation. I haven't looked at this in detail, but have you been surprised by the the number of injuries and the severity of the injuries? It seems like it gets worse every year, and so maybe we shouldn't be surprised by that, but it has surprised me to a certain extent. Have you noticed that injuries seem to be more and more of a factor in uh, in fantasy baseball? I feel like every year injuries just feel excessive, and I know there's been some talk this year that uh, I haven't actually seen definitive numbers, but... I've seen people speculating that injuries are up, especially to pitchers due to the pitch clock and how that might, you know, that might continue to get worse. So that's definitely something I think we should be monitoring and and keeping an eye on. Yeah. And I've I've already seen some analysis of it coming around and, and not only are they looking at are pitchers getting injured more often, but what kind of pitchers are more prone to injury because of the time clock? You know, is it uh, more fastball heavy guys or sinker heavy guys or breaking ball heavy guys? Those kind of uh, finer details because at some point maybe it becomes something we have to look at when we're planning our teams and when we're managing our teams in season. You know, you get offered a trade for a guy who fits into the profile of highly likely to be injured because of the time clock, and maybe you change your mind. Yeah, absolutely. Was there, uh, I haven't, I mean, it totally makes sense that certain guys could be affected more than others. Have you read anything speculating which types of guys that might be? I have read some speculation on the topic, but uh, they don't agree in in a, in a lot of senses. Some some guys, as I said, they're they're more worried about fastball pitching because the evidence is increasingly that the elbow strain from throwing hard fastballs is really the number one culprit. We used to think for years that it was sliders and and uh, other kinds of breaking pitches, but uh, apparently the evidence over the last few years has shifted away from that. But there's also the the impact of the pitch clock ha- hasn't been quantified yet because it hasn't been there long enough, frankly. So I think a lot of the speculation that I've read really reads like speculation, a lot of people making educated guesses, but guesses all the same. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there anything going on in the fantasy baseball environment, the larger environment or the some small part of the environment that fantasy managers might not be fully understanding or missing an opportunity? Yeah, I think there might be. I think this kind of speaks to what I was talking about earlier, where the run environment is considerably more hitter friendly this year than it's been in several years than I think anyone was expecting. And I think the the combination of that paired with weather create some interesting dynamics and opportunities that can be taken advantage of. And I don't think people are fully doing it. So like if we know that the run environment is going to be up this year, home runs are going to be up. Strikeouts are going to be down. That's only going to get worse 
as or more pronounced as we get into the summer months and it gets hotter as it starts getting hotter and this is what the the ball is going to be playing like or the run environment is going to be playing like we're going to see some pretty massive you know hitting lines out there you know we're going to see balls flying out of parks we're going to see pitchers getting shelled regularly and so i think when we're thinking about trying to maximize the stats on our rosters um we should be much more aggressive streaming pitchers now while it's colder rather than filling our innings later in the year. So I think, uh, you know, your threshold for basic, basically like, is this guy worth starting this week? Should I be streaming this mediocre pitcher who's in a good matchup this week? I think our threshold for doing that should be, uh, we, we should be much more aggressive in doing that now and much less aggressive doing it later because uh, pitchers are only going to start getting getting, you know, worse stats as the season goes on. So, you know, I, I see people asking sometimes on Twitter to me or to other analysts, like, you know, oh, should I start this guy? Is this, you know, is this matchup, you know, good enough for him this week? I'm in a 12 team league. Like is like the answer is, is air on the side of being aggressive with the pitchers because I'd much rather play a guy against a, a little bit tougher offense. Now when he's pitching in 50 degrees than against an average offense in the summer when it's 85 because of the way the weather is going to impact things as we go deeper into the year. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought of that, but it's a really good point. When you talk about the run environment, because uh, we're going to, we have seen and probably will continue to see on the basis of weather, as you said, more home runs, does that put an extra premium on ground ball pitchers? Uh, yeah, it does. I mean, as home runs go up, obviously the guys who are allowing less fly balls are going to be at a relative advantage. So ground ball guys, again, especially as we get into the summer, are guys that are maybe going to be a little bit more immune to their ERAs ballooning you know, due to home runs. On the flip side, however, the argument against that approach is that with the shift rules, all of a sudden, a lot more of those ground balls are sneaking through and becoming base hits. But it's, I think I'd rather give up a few more singles than a few more home runs. That's for sure. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Derek Carty from the Bat and the Bat X Projection Systems. And Derek, in the last week or so, we've seen some pretty good young pitching coming up more, in fact, than I can ever remember starting their big league careers within a span of whatever it's been, 10 or 12 days. What are your early reactions to what we've seen so far from Logan Allen, Tanner Bybee, Brandon Fott, Bryce Miller, Mason Miller, and Gavin Stone, guys like that? Yeah, it's pretty exciting having all these young guys come up. Um, I think for some of them, I think we should be really, really excited. For others, I think it's maybe a little bit more prospect luster. People are a little more excited than they, they realistically should be. Uh, especially since we've seen some really good returns from a couple of these guys, you know, people kind of uh, expecting all of them to to be like that. And I do think we're going to see a few duds out of this group, but I think there's a couple of, you know, quote unquote league winners in here too. So it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. Well, before we go on to the challenges of projecting guys like this, uh, you say there's a couple of league winners, do tell. Uh, Mason Miller. I mean, Mason Miller in particular is, is clearly the best of this group. He's the guy who has the most, I guess, uncertainty about him because he's, I mean, what does he have? Like 30 or 35 professional innings under his belt at this point. Like he really, we've seen very little of him, 
but everything we've seen about him has been ridiculously good. You know, he's struck out guys at a ridiculous level all up and down the minors and his, you know, various, <laughs> you know, he's probably made like 10 starts, but they've been really good. And he's made three starts in the majors so far, and he's striking out 10 guys per nine and his walks have been relatively under control and he pitches in a great park. He's going to be hard pressed to find wins because he pitches for the Oakland A's. <laughs> no kidding. <right? laughs> Just from a talent perspective, he's uh he's really good. The bat projects him as like a top 30 pitcher in major league baseball right now, even with a small sample size. Now that can wind up dropping fast if he has a few duds, but everything about him, you have to like, you look at his, you know, his pitching bot or his stuff plus numbers. And it looks like his stuff is among the best pitchers in baseball, you know, like top five, you know, in the realm of like Otani and DeGrom and like guys that we know are super elite. And so he's a guy that we have to be really excited about and potentially just winds up dominating and, uh, you know, wins leagues for guys, you know, essentially, or, or puts you in a much better position to do that. I mentioned that you're the builder of the bat and the bat X projection systems, which are among the very best in the business. And I know that from talking to you and to other people who build projections, that the basis of most projections is track record or past records. You you wait the previous three years in some way and and tweak and figure it out that way. But these young players, of course, don't have that background. So how do you build rest of season projections for young pitchers like this coming into Major League Baseball for the first time? Obviously, you wind up with wider error bars than you will on a Major League pitcher but you use the data that's available to you. You know, we do have minor league data on all of these guys, uh, less so on Mason Miller than we do on the others, but we have minor league data for all of them. So you look at, you know, where they pitched in the minors, what parks they were in, what the quality of competition is at that level, how those numbers tend to translate to the majors on average for, you know, historically for pitchers. Um, again, it's, it's not as precise as you want it to be, uh, once they get to the majors, obviously you start folding in that data. You can start looking at, you know, their basically their their stuff. You know, um, the bat is not fully accounting for stuff yet, but I uh, I have been developing my own version of you know stuff plus for I don't know six years now, and it is almost done. So hopefully by the middle of this year, that will be. Uh, in the bad X for pitchers, but for now it is accounting for uh, fastball velocity, fastball spin rate. A guy like Mason Miller, who's averaging, you know, what, 98 or 99 miles per hour on his fastball, that's a big deal. That's going into the projection. And so really we're just, you know, doing the best we can. But I do think, especially for young guys without a big sample size, having that that stuff component um, added to the bad X later this year will be will be pretty big. At Baseball HQ, we have these calculations called Major League Equivalents, and they're pretty standard. It's just a, an algorithm that's not particular to any particular player, but you say this guy's record at the AA level was X, Y, or Z, and this is the league he was playing, and this is how his minor league stats would have looked in a major league setting. Does your projection system algorithm or how you have the setup and calculations have a standardized MLE from which you maybe deviate or tweak depending on the individual player? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's going to change uh, depending on, you know, again, which level he's coming from. You want to adjust for the context of it, for the level, for the park. Uh, you know, guys who are maybe repeating a level, I'll account for, you know, they, 
you know, guys who have, you know, extra experience at the level obviously should be expected to do better than, than a young guy who's, you know, at the level, you know, a new level for the first time. So yeah, the bat is accounting for all of that. It's creating its own major league equivalencies, which, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to consider when you're doing those. There's all sorts of survivorship biases you have to account for and, and aging and everything else. But yeah, the bat has its own system for that. And that is, uh, really the main thing that drives the projections for these young guys. So I can imagine the kind of challenges that you have in creating these pitcher projections, given the absence of major league data. But I wonder, does the challenge of projecting young pitchers differ from the challenges in projecting young hitters? Uh, yes and no. I mean, with both, we're dealing with you know limited data. You know, we kind of only have surface level data to work with. We we're dealing with the the imprecision of having to translate it to, you know, a major league equivalency, essentially. We are starting to get a little bit more and more some of this more advanced stackcast type data for for minor league players. I think this year in particular, those systems are in more parks to track that type of data. So I'm excited to get bigger sample sizes on that for the miners to be able to start folding that into into the projections. But really, the challenges are very similar. I'd say maybe they're more challenging for pitchers because there's more that pitchers can do to more things they're you know maybe trying to work on in the minors where their their numbers aren't necessarily representative of who they are. You know, they're in the minors. the 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 team wants them to work on their changeup or whatever, so they're throwing more changeups than they will when they go to the majors and because it's their weaker pitch, their numbers look worse, but they're improving it. And so that kind of thing obviously is very, very difficult to account for. Kind of like spring training where we, everybody gets their uh, undershorts in a knot because uh, a pitcher is not performing well. And then you read in the news or something that, well, he's been throwing nothing but curveballs because the team wants him to work on that. And they're not very good right now, but you know, as they get better, he'll get better. And the, and the results in the long run will probably be better. Um, you mentioned that you like Mason Miller amongst the six guys that I mentioned the most, but uh, you also said that a couple of these guys are maybe not so much. If you were to rank them, assuming Mason Miller is first, you got Logan Allen, Tanner Bybee, Brandon Fott, Bryce Miller, and Gavin Stone, who really did not have a great start on uh, Wednesday night. How would you rank these based on what the uh, what the bat projections say about them? So I think it's Mason Miller definitely first, kind of in like a tier to himself. And then below him, I like Gavin Stone and, and Bryce Miller. I think they're both very good. Both have big upside. And then kind of a tier below them, I would say the order's probably Brandon Fott, Logan Allen, Tanner Bybee. Um, definitely have upside, but plenty of downside for those guys also. I'm not like super enthusiastic about them. We'll probably have one of those guys break out and wind up doing pretty well. Uh, I would say one or two of them will probably wind up flopping. Uh, I can't tell you which one it's going to be, but that's kind of my my ordering of of that tier of pitchers. Does that ranking change if we think about multi-season dynasty or keeper league formats where these pitchers might have a bit longer of a time horizon? Yeah, it certainly can, but it's going to be based on really like, you know, which guys are less polished, which guys have great stuff. Uh, but you know, Mason Miller already has great stuff and is already pitching well. So like, he's still going to be your top guy. I, you know, I don't think my, 
my ranking of these guys in particular would necessarily change a whole lot other than just to say those guys that maybe I'm not super excited about for this year, obviously I would be more excited to have in a dynasty because of their upside. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Derek Carty from the Bat and the Bat X Projection Systems. And Derek, you had a really interesting Twitter thread recently offering 10 tips for sports bettors. And uh, we should explain that really your main focus in uh, in baseball these days is as a sports better rather than as a fantasy player. And a lot of your work uh, tends in that direction. And it's really interesting work. Let me just say that. The focus in your 10 tips was on making smart decisions that start with picking which bets to make. How does that work? A lot of times people, you know, they'll, they'll make bets based on, I'm a Yankees fan. I'm going to bet on the Yankees tonight. And that's generally not a good way to do it. <laughs> um, you want to bet based on math, ideally based on projections. Um, and you want to you wanna bet in a smart way. Everything, there's a bunch of different sports books out there. There's DraftKings, there's FanDuel, there's MGM. They're all going to offer you different odds on every bet. So the most basic thing you can do to be a better better is by finding the best line. And that might not seem like a big deal, but it really is. And I kind of run through the math a little bit in the thread on it. Um, finding the best line is, is super important. A lot of casual bettors will only bet overs. They'll say, okay, well, I really like, you know, uh, Jacob deGrom today. So I'm going to bet the over on his strikeouts. And a lot of people don't even consider betting unders, but unders are, are a lot of times more profitable. At the very least, you should be betting both of them. You shouldn't just ignore half of all possible bets. So there, there's a lot of things like that, that I talk about in the thread that to a more sophisticated better, you know, maybe is super obvious, um, but to casual betters will immediately make you more profitable. Just as you were saying that, it popped into my head uh, when you said you can sometimes play both. And I think you meant in the larger sense, you should pick an under if it's a better bet than uh, than the over in any particular situation. But are there arbitrage opportunities between two different books that would literally let you play the over on the same pitcher and the under on the same pitcher in a given game because of the way that the odds are set up? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something you can look out for. It doesn't happen super frequently, but on occasion you can find something like that where basically you can guarantee, you know, a small profit by finding lines and betting both sides. Again, pretty rare these days, but it's possible. The reason I thought of it, I was watching your YouTube channel, which is really fun, by the way. I really enjoy that uh, YouTube show that you could do. And and uh, at one point you were talking about a particular bet, and I don't remember what it was. It was a pitcher under on strikeouts. I remember that. It might have been Kyle Freeland of Colorado. I don't know uh, if that if that rings true, whether it was an over or under. I can't remember. But the people who were watching were in the chat window and they were throwing up the odds that they were seeing at their particular book that they use. And there was a really big range. Like uh, you were p- picking it at uh, minus 106, I think, or something like that. And the some of them were quoting odds of like minus 185, minus 170, like that. So it seemed like there was a pretty wide range of opportunities, which first of all, makes your point about shop for the best rate. You know, if you were buying a car, you wouldn't just go to the first guy you saw and buy a car. You'd shop around and you <laughs> should be doing that with your uh, with your sports wagering if you're going to do it. But it also seemed like 
you know, if there if there's that big of a spread between the books that there might be arbitrage opportunities, that's what made me think of it. Yeah, no, there definitely can be. And sometimes you will see spreads like that. Uh, the show that we do is a lot of fun because, you know, we put out a bet and, you know, we, we find the best number and we tell people where they can find it so everybody can kind of bet it at the same time before before the line moves because, you know, the sports books, you know, really respect these projections. And as soon as we put it out, the, you know, the lines will move. So, uh, yeah, like you said, I mean, the car example is a perfect one, you know, like shop for the best line. And I mean, there's a, there's a fantasy kind of, you know, uh, parallel to that. You know, if, if you think you can draft a player that you like in the 12th round, why would you draft him in the fifth? You know, like, wait until the point where you're going to get the best price on them. And it's the same thing with sports betting, like find the best price. And a lot of the thread was also about understanding the odds. And if I can summarize and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but basically what you're looking for is a situation where you think that the probability of something happening is different from what the book thinks. And that's the time that you should be thinking about making your bet because you're you're basically thinking that they've got it slightly wrong, just wrong enough that you can sneak in there and make a small gain and just make your money basically on volume. Yeah, that is exactly it. Like that, that is sports betting in a nutshell. So many people think sports betting is about knowing the sport. And obviously you need to know the sport to an extent, but it's not just like, okay, well I know the sport and I know that I like Garrett Cole tonight. So I'm just going to bet on Garrett Cole. But the book knows that Garrett Cole is a good pitcher too. So maybe the line on him isn't, isn't favorable. So what you want to really figure out is, okay, I think Garrett Cole has a 65% chance of going over his strikeout prop tonight. And the odds that the book are, getting, are giving me imply that he has only a 60% chance of going over the the strikeout prop. And so I have that little 5% edge in value. So it's a good bet and I can place the bet. But if the book's line were different and the book said that he had a 70% chance of going over, well, now you want to bet the under because you know it's 5% in the other direction. So that's really all sports betting is about is finding the probability of something happening and comparing it to the probability implied by the odds. And that's, that's what you do in sports betting. I don't know how much you know about this. I'm going to guess you know more than me. So I'll ask when I was young and reading about sports betting, the odds were being set by an actual person who, who did understand all of these things that we're talking about better than most, but it was a, uh, there was a person or a committee of sorts that was setting the odds on the events. Is it now more an algorithm that the casinos or the sports books are using to set those odds? And is it basically coming down to, uh, the bat and the bat X versus MGM in the algorithm department? It's a combination of things, you know, books are definitely going to have algorithms, um, but they're also going to have people who kind of sanity check them, tweak them, um, you know, based on, you know, a bunch of different factors. And then the books are also going to adjust their lines. A big part of what goes into book setting lines is uh, reacting to what people do, specifically what sharp betters do. Books are going to have uh, betters flagged as, you know, certain betters flagged as sharp betters or square betters. Um, and so when they see sharp betters bet a certain way on a number, they're going to move it based on that because they've seen historically these betters have been long-term winners 
you know, we should react and respect what they're doing. And we're going to move the lines based on, based on that. So that, uh, you know, the next person who bets on it is going to have to bet into a sharper line. Did you ever read the book about the Tim Donahue, uh, uh, NBA game fixing thing? It, w- it wasn't about him exactly. It was more about the bookmaker that he was working with. And it was really interesting because the, the biggest challenge that guy faced was that all the casinos knew he was winning and they couldn't f- quite figure out why sometimes, but every time he placed a bet, the line immediately moved to offset whatever it was he was betting on. And so they built these elaborate schemes to have other people make the bets for them. They would, and they would go overseas to Hong Kong to try to get in early before the big American books open and these kind of things. And from that, it was not a good book, but it was that part of it I thought was really interesting. Yeah, no, I've, I've actually never read that book, but I mean, that makes total sense. And I think, I mean, people are still doing that. There are syndicates where, you know, the main guy is blocked or limited or whatever. And, you know, you have a bunch of other people that go out and place the bets for you. And that's, that's certainly still a thing that, that goes on in, in the sports betting world. I don't remember the name of the book. I'll send it to you and I'll tell our listeners uh, maybe at the end of the show. This is not a sports betting podcast per se, as you know, Derek, but I thought there might be some value or parallels in applying your philosophical rules of betting to our fab decision-making, which is what we're talking about a lot on this show today, could we and should we be trying to use those same calculations of return on investment and probabilities in trying to calibrate our fab bids? I think to an extent, it's kind of what everyone does, or at least what sharp fantasy players do, um, just kind of intuitively, you know, in their mind, maybe they're not saying, okay, well, I think this guy has, you know, a 70% chance of, you know, of giving me 20 home runs the rest of the way, or, or, you know, having some objective net. Um, but I think intuitively that's what the good fantasy players do. And I think if you do think about it, maybe a little bit more explicitly, it can kind of help clarify for you what the best decisions to make are when it comes to fab. When I was thinking about it, I thought I would just look at it as a value proposition. And I started thinking about, well, if I think that this guy is a pitcher who could be a $20 pitcher the rest of the way, but I only think he's got a 60% chance of being that, then the most I should be willing to pay is tw- uh, the equivalent of $12. I don't know how I'm going to scale that to the the particular bidding environment, what the limits are, what my bankroll is at the time. And that seems to be the potential knock on my analysis when you're betting with a sports book, it's you versus the book, basically. And the book is largely unaffected yep. by the behavior of individual other people, except to the guys who move the lines, but you can't affect that anyway. But in fabbing, the environment has way more variables. There's the behavior of your opponents, what their roster situations are, what everybody's remaining budgets are what their category needs are and all this kind of stuff. So how might we still apply odds calculations and probabilities to a situation that adds all these extra variables into the mix? Yeah. So obviously the more variables you have, the more difficult it is, but you can, you can certainly break it down into components based on kind of what you know about your league. Like, okay, maybe you think this guy has, you know, whatever, a 70% chance of being a $20 player. And based on that, you figure out your optimal bet bet size. But then you also have to consider the rest of your league and what the rest of your league might do. And so maybe you say, okay, well, I think this guy is worth, 
you know, 20% of my fab. So, you know, let's say $20 out of a hundred. Um, he's worth 20% of my fab, but I think there's, you know, uh, uh, whatever, you know, only, uh, only a 10% chance that someone else in my league is going to think he's worth more than 10. So then maybe you, you know, you run, you know, you run some back of the envelope math and you decide, okay, well, even though he's worth 20, I might be able to get away with winning him. You know, maybe I, th I think I have a 90% chance of winning him if I only bet or if I only bid $12 or something like that. Right. And you kind of think about it that way too. Do you think we could apply that same sort of thinking when we're making our weekly decisions on which players to start and which ones to bench? Absolutely. Um, and I think that's where, um, that's where the math becomes a little bit more concrete, a little bit less abstract because you can use projections to figure that out. You know, the bat, uh, I, you know, the bat is the one that I use because it's mine, but you know, the bat will project, um, player stats for the upcoming week, you know, based on the matchup and everything else. So you know, if, if I think the average expectation for a certain pitcher, you know, even if he's a weak pitcher, but he's in a good matchup, you know, I think this week in particular, he's worth, you know, the equivalent of like, you know, a $30 player or whatever. Um, obviously I'm going to prioritize him more in my fab bidding for this week, or just, it'll help me make the, the start sit decision for guys that are on my bench, that kind of thing, which projections really are just a probability. Or, or an average of multiple, you know, a range of, of outcomes. So yeah, we should absolutely be doing that with our, with our start sit decisions. Um, and ideally using a projection to do it because the projection is going to run that probability a lot more precisely than we can ourselves. And then do you also throw in your own estimate of the probability of the projection being right or the value of the projection being, if you say this week, you know, Michael Lorenzen's going to have a start that makes him a potential $30 pitcher, do you then say in your own mind, yeah, but I'm going to say that's only about a 75% probability. So I'm going to scale it down to a, a $22 value, which is what I'm going to use when I'm comparing him to all the other guys that I have. So in theory, a projection should be 50, 50, you know, the guy should have a 50% chance of going over 50% chance of going under. So unless I have reason to believe the projection isn't accounting for something, um, that's going to be my expectation. Maybe a guy is a high variance guy, you know, Mason Miller's first start, you know, we, we had an expectation he was going to be good, but maybe he's not, maybe he's going to be better than we think. So maybe, you know, the, uh, the distribution, you know, beyond that 50% mean is wider for a guy like him. And we want to consider that, but theoretically the projection itself should be that 50% mark. It sounds really interesting, and it seems like something that uh, if you want to be really good at fantasy baseball, I think it merits thinking about. So follow Derek, uh, check out his show sometimes, because I should have said when we were talking about the, the YouTube channel that you have, you guys aren't just throwing the numbers out there and saying, this is the guy to pick, and the, these are the bets we like, but you explain why you think those bets are solid bets, and the, the why of it, I think, may be even more important than the what of it. Yeah, it's uh, it's the show I do with covers. It's Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. But we'll give out the picks that the projections like, but we'll also, like you said, we'll talk about why it's a good pick. The point of the show essentially is to give a glimpse into how professional bettors actually bet and actually view these things. So we'll talk about, um, you know, kind of the concepts behind it and, and you know, certain patterns or certain things that you should be looking for as a good better and, and really kind of, we hope, you know, 
not just giving you the picks, but making you smarter uh, for your own bets as well. Teach a man to fish versus giving him a fish to eat uh, is the analogy that we use all the time at Baseball HQ. Yeah, it, it's important to know why. That's what makes you a, a good player, I think. Are there any other overlaps or parallels in the betting universe to the fantasy baseball universe? I'm sure there are, but <laughs> I mean, these are the ones that I've been thinking about right now. So uh, no, no other ones come to mind immediately. This has been super interesting, Derek. And as you know, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. And lately I've been doing uh, good values for and bad values for the weekend's fab that's coming up. And uh, if you're willing, let's start with your boons. These are players you think look like good value this weekend for fab. Jesse Winker and Gene Segura both really stuck out to me. They're both guys that have struggled a lot this year and nothing about them in 2023 looks good. Their surface numbers look bad. Their peripheral numbers, their stack cast numbers all look kind of bad. But their historical track record is very, very good. And I think a lot of times people will overreact to what happens early on in a baseball season, especially when you see, oh, well, their stack cast numbers are really bad. I look at his stack cast page and it's all it's all blue on that little graph there. So of course he's just bad now. And I don't think people realize that there is a lot of noise even in those, you know, quote unquote advanced metrics. And so I'm certainly willing to take a shot on a guy with a strong track record that I expected to be good coming into the year, even if he's been bad for three weeks, you know, because there's still a really good chance that he's just getting unlucky. He's had bad variance and he's going to bounce back. And so guys like Winker and Segura, I still think over the rest of the year are more likely than not to return good value for you. And how about a couple of players you think represent bad values for you? There's going to be a lot of them, but one guy that stuck out to me that it seems like people might be into is Oswaldo Cabrera for the Yankees. Like they've been dealing with some injuries. Obviously, Aaron Judge is is on the IL. Cabrera has been picking up some more, uh, some more playing time. But I'm just not a fan of this guy. He's a young guy without a great track record in the minors. He's been really bad so far this year. So even if he starts to pick up some more playing time, which with Harrison Bader back, I'm not even sure if that's going to be the case. Um, I just don't think he's good. The bat doesn't think he's good. Um, He's not a guy I'd have interest in bidding on. I thought I read somewhere that Harrison Bader hurt himself again, was taken off the field on Wednesday night. I'm not 100% Uh, sure about that. Yeah. You might be right. I might have missed that. Um, but yeah, even if that's the case, I still don't think Cabrera's worth it. Doesn't, um, yeah, it doesn't make Oswaldo Cabrera any better of a player. No, it doesn't. So that that's my main point here is that even with playing time, I don't think I don't think he's gonna give you that much. What I like to look at when I'm looking at players in, in these waiver pools, free agent pools, is when I look at the player does he have any kind of tool that really stands out? I don't care what it is. Does he have big power? Okay, he strikes out a lot, but it's a tool. It's something that might provide value. Does he have a good hit tool with no power? I can take that. You know, base hits help. You know, they get you on base. Does he get on base a lot? Is that his his one overriding skill? And when I look at Oswaldo Cabrera, I just don't see that. Yeah, I mean, you can squint and say he's got some speed. You can squint and say he's got some power. But ultimately, I'm unimpressed with with what he ultimately is, I think. Yeah, I don't like having to squint to see my talent for any of these purposes. (laughs) 
Derek Cardi's Boons, uh, Jesse Winker of Milwaukee, and Gene Segura of Miami, and his Bane, Oswaldo Cabrera of the Yankees. Uh, Derek, I expected this was going to be interesting and fun. It was more than interesting and lots of fun. Uh, remind us where our listeners can keep up with your work. Yes, you can find me on Twitter at Derek Cardi. You can find the bat projection system um, for free for season-long purposes, rest of season projections at Fangraphs, uh, for sports betting at EV Analytics, for DFS at Roto Grinders. And I do that that betting show that we talked about with covers every Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, 9.15 a.m. Eastern time. Yeah. Well, your work is really interesting, and it's uh, always fun to talk with you about it. I appreciate it. I hope we get to talk again during the season. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Derek Carty is the founder and operator of the BAT and the BAT-X projection systems. Later on, I'll be talking with Zach Waxman from the Draft Champions podcast about his fab reviews and the boons and banes for this weekend. But coming up next, it's our Market Watch Player News Reports with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Playing Time Tomorrow, analyst Brian Rudd forecasts rosters on the five American League Central teams, including second base situations in Kansas City and Chicago. And Dan Marcus looks at the rosters of all five teams in the National League West, including a couple of veteran starters who could be in trouble in San Diego and injuries affecting the San Francisco outfield. Playing time tomorrow, roster forecasting, and just another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly news review and update. And here with the latest is Ray Murphy, co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to the show. Happy Friday, PD. Always the highlight of the week. It's fun for me too, and uh, I guess it's not so fun for Jake Berger in Chicago. The White Sox put Berger on the IL and recalled infielder Lennon Sosa, who I think they just sent down last week. Rick Green covers the White Sox for playing time today. This is a, a tough loss for a Chicago offense that was reeling, and Jake Berger was pretty much the only thing they had going for him. That's exactly right. Berger has been a bright spot in an otherwise uh, really cloudy start of the season for the White Sox. And, you know, personally for Berger, it's a real tough break, too. We've chronicled on the show before his, uh, you know, long checkered injury history and finally had seemingly taken a Mankata injury that gave him opportunity three or so weeks ago and really looked like he was just kicking the door down and they weren't going to be able to take him out of the lineup. And sure enough, the injury bug bites him again. Uh, but, you know, he had had seven home runs, and we, which was, you know, easily the team lead on that anemic offense. He had only been hitting 224 with a 31% strikeout rate, which is a little concerning. Um, but, you know, that's uh, we'll have to – we're holding off on figuring out exactly what the playing time implications are here while we see how long Berger's going to be out. Uh, I don't think we've seen a firm return date on Moncada yet either. He's due for a rehab assignment, uh, and we'll see how long that lasts. So in the meantime, as long as both of them are out, which seems like it's going to be at least a couple of series, uh, it's Sosa, who you mentioned, and Hanser Alberto, Alberto, who are going to split the third base time. Uh, to say there's not much exciting there is – to put it mildly. Uh, Sosa, as you said, was uh, just sent down last week, um, taking his uh, 
151 batting average with him. Um, Alberto has been comparatively raking with a 190 batting average. <laughs> um, so neither one of them is a uh, high priority free agent target for this weekend, shall we say? Yeah, unless you're in a 20 team AL only, uh, <laughs> and you're you're actually picking up guys who retired and that kind of thing. Yeah, even then, better to protect your ratios. <laughs> yeah, you got a point there. You're not getting a lot of counting stats. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, earlier in the year, I bemoaned getting Adelise Garcia at the American League only Tout Wars auction for 24 because it just wasn't a good fit for my budget at the time. And I still think it was a mistake, but our batting buyer's guide columnist, Stephen Nickrand has a new column out this week that says Adelise Garcia en route to turning me a nice profit. What's the story? Yeah. Stephen took a look at, uh, Adelise's, uh, you know, sort of, uh, under the hood indicators and liked what he saw. You know, if you look at what Garcia has actually produced, he's got a 250 batting average with a 307 OBP, which is not letting the world on fire, but eight home runs and 31 RBIs, I think half of which came on one night, is is a pretty good uh, start in the uh, counting categories. And overall, you know, seven OPS and 127 plate appearances certainly isn't bad. Uh, The good news that Stephen focused on is that Garcia's contact rate has improved. Uh, it's up five points, um, mostly because he stopped chasing bad pitches, which, you know, if it was as easy to do that as just to tell people to do it, everyone would do it. But Garcia has actually figured out how to do that. Um, dropping his chase right now, you know, it's now better than the league average, uh, which combining that with the fact that, you know, really good things happen when he does put the bat on the ball, that's, uh, you know, th- that that's good news. He's uh, always been sort of a stat cast darling from the uh, – quality of contact perspective again which is governed by what he does make contact but uh, 115 mile per hour max exit velocity uh 92.7 average and uh, 51 percent hard hit balls so again you know when he puts the bat on the ball really good things happen so if he's swinging and missing less that's just phenomenal because it means that uh you know being more selective is going to lead to more of those good outcomes yeah, his uh, batted ball outcomes, I think, are all top 10 percentage level, elite stat cast levels, so it, it is really good. I guess maybe it was a useful mistake. If you're going to make a mistake, it might as well be useful. The Tout American League, I should point out, is an on-base league, so I checked Baseball HQ's custom draft guide valuation, a really valuable tool for in-season assessment. $24 so far this year, a break-even for me because he has only stolen one base. And this is a guy coming off 16 and 25 stolen bases the last couple of seasons. So watching for signs of life in that department. Uh, In his excellent lineups outlook column, which focuses on batting order, Greg Jewett of Baseball HQ noted a couple of hitters getting batting order promotions. And one of them is uh, Seattle outfielder Jared Kelnick. Yeah, this is really exciting because on top of the hot start that Kelnick got off to sort of reclaiming his prospect status and finally looking like he was making the transition to the majors with a hot April. Uh, You you know, he he gets an endorsement from his manager here and a uh, bump up the lineup. Um, You know, he's really, you know, he's really earned that. Um, He's been a pivotal part of that lineup. You know, he was producing a ton down in the uh, 6-7 spot uh, for the year. He's hitting 309 with a 370 OBP and a 600 plus slug uh, with eight doubles, seven homers, five stolen bases, all in first hundred, plate, hundred or so plate appearances. That's uh, that's terrific. So as a result of that, 
he is uh, in five of the last six games, he's jumped up to the number three spot in the lineup, which, as I said, is a endorsement that the Mariners think he finally has figured it out. And even if he has figured it out, you know, you can understand the Mariners' temptation to, you know, sort of just leave him alone rather than put more on him the minute he shows signs of life. But they're like, no, no, move him up to move him up to the three spot, put him in the middle middle of the lineup. So uh, I endorse that. Uh, fantasy players should endorse it, of course, because. Batting in the top third means more plate appearances. You're surrounded by better OBP guys, more counting stats. Um, they even had him hit lefty once, hit uh, third once, I should say, against the lefty starter, which is uh, in that recent stretch, which is, uh, again, a striking endorsement from a Mariners organization that has lived the travails of the uh, Kelnick extended uh, prospect emergence here. So the fact that they're buying in on it, uh, I love it. And I noted that his platoon splits, which have been a problem in the past, you mentioned that they let him hit third against a left-handed starter during this run, and uh, his 22 or 25 plate appearances, something like that this year, but he's got an uh, 1131 OPS. It's actually a higher OPS than he's doing against right-handed starters, so I, I think he's on the right track. However, you mentioned that this uh, promotion has been relatively recent, and uh, they were basically taking his hitting six stats and expecting him to manage them in the third slot. And that hasn't really worked out that way. No tiny sample, but this is something we want to watch, right? He's only hit 222 uh, with a 300 OBP in uh, 28 plate appearances in that number three spot over most of the last week with uh, one double and one RBI. Uh, so could be coincidental, could be small sample size. He obviously, you know, we couldn't expect him to, carry a you know, near 1,000 OPS all season, I don't think. So a little regression was probably to be expected. But the fact that it gets that it coincides with the lineup promotion means we sort of have to wonder, you know, how long before the matters are like, oh, okay, maybe we gave you a little too much to chew on, knock you back down to the sixth spot until you get hot again. Uh, there have to be a little bit of wait and see on that. Like your dad giving you the keys to the Maserati and watching you grind your way out of the driveway and said, here, get back in here and take the Pontiac. Exactly. He didn't <laughs> drive it into the guardrail or anything, but yeah, he's, he's squeaking the gears on backing out of the driveway. That's exactly the right level of concern here, I think. By the way, how old am I to cite a Pontiac as the fallback? <laughs> when was the last time anybody built a Pontiac? Gosh, it's got to be like 20 years ago. Man, I'm getting old. Uh, Greg also mentions a couple of streamable hitters in the column, including Luke Rayleigh of Tampa for this coming week. Uh, I think that's a nice bonus that Greg goes to that trouble to find these guys who are not front of the line third place hitters in the various lineups around, but are the kind of guys that we do stream in a lot of uh, fantasy baseball situations. It's a nice bonus. It is. Uh, you know, it, it's it's so important. One of the things I've been paying more attention to in my leagues is trying to um, accumulate as many plate appearances as I can, as I can and lead or near lead the league in plate appearances uh, as, as a way of, you know, sort of buttressing your, counting stats and, you know, little edges like this really do add up. Let's move over to the American League pitchers and we'll start in Seattle. The story of the last few days has been the influx of top rated pitching prospects across both leagues. And we got to see two of them in one game this week, 
Newly arrived Seattle right-hander Bryce Miller started against recent call-up Mason Miller in Oakland. We talked about Mason Miller earlier. Jock Thompson's on top of this story. He covers the American League West in a most colorful and interesting way in playing time tomorrow, roster forecasting. What is Jock's take on Bryce Miller's debut? Yeah, Jock really does a great job with the uh, covering his beat in the AOS there. It's always like uh, an extra set of eyes that I'm always interested in what has caught Jock's eye, you know, as much as analysis is what uh, what he chose to write about and what he thinks is impactful. He's got a, he's got a great eye for that stuff. Uh, and to be to be fair to Bryce Miller, um, he may have actually taken a competition downgrade in getting called up since his first start was against the uh, barely AAA lineup of the Athletics, right? So it's You're almost like generous. half a night off. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah, it's a step up in competition in name only, right? Um, and, you know, of course, from the Mariners' perspective, it worked out exactly as they drew it up. Uh, Bryce Miller threw six innings, 81 pitches, 57 for strikes, one earned run allowed, two hits, no walks, 10 strikeouts. I mean, yeah, it's the athletics, but you can't do much better than that. That's kind of checking all the boxes. Uh, you know, we, I think he, uh, Jock pointed out, he fe- featured the fastball a ton, uh, was just p- pounding the strike zone with 96 mile an hour heat and kind of daring the athletics to do something with it, which they did not really do. Um, Mason Miller, t- to his credit on the other side of this game, uh, was the only reason that Bryce Miller didn't get the win because Mason Miller was also dealing and matched Bryce zero for zero. Um, there are so many Miller time jokes here. I don't even know where to start. Right. Um, so nobody scored until, uh, Bryce Miller got out of the game, which is why Bryce didn't get the win, but, uh, definitely a strong start for him. And I'm sure will lead to some attraction in this weekend's fab bidding, even though, uh, most of the rest of his starts will, will be against better competition. I saw a, a website story about Bryce Miller, but it had his initial B Miller. And the first thing that popped, well, what was the first thing that pops into your head when you hear B Miller? B Miller. Bill Miller? I thought of Barney Miller. The old, Barney Miller. Yeah, there you go. The old cop show. Yeah. Which, sure. He drove a Pontiac, I think. There you go. <laughs> yeah, he drove a Pontiac, yeah. <laughs> When I worked at the newspaper, I was an entertainment writer, and I did a story one time of going out to professionals in the community and saying, what TV show best represents your line of work? And I went to the cops, and I thought they were going to say Hill Street Blues or one of those very realistic sort of gritty cop dramas to a man. They all said, Barney Miller. There you go. That's exactly what police work is like. So if you haven't watched Barney Miller, uh, give it a try. It's really funny. A jock said that... Miller had been part of the Seattle's double-A rotation in Arkansas, which is one of the better, most watchable ones, he described it, in the high minors. And he looked at the rest of the starters on that staff. What did Jock say about the other pitchers who might be in Seattle's minor league pipeline coming up? Yeah, he was looking, I think, to spot who sort of the next man up would be. And uh, what he found in a little bit of digging was that there's kind of nobody who's beaten the door down. Uh there's Taylor Dollard, who had a really good year in Double A last year, but as uh, you know, just a couple of starts has been knocked around a little bit in Triple A this year. Plus, he's on the IL with uh, you know just a blister problem, but again, not begging for a call up. Emerson Hancock and Prolander Boa are there, um, in, in missing some Double A bats uh, with a, way more than a strikeout and inning between the two of them. Uh, but they're also walking a bunch of people, which is probably not something that. Uh, it's going to speed their path to Seattle. Uh, there's Brian Wu as well, who's kind of who's been the most effective of this group. 
17 innings with a four walk 27 strikeout ratio so that checks some boxes uh he's always been something more of a control artist i think the strikeout rate is the surprise there so if that sustains then maybe that's the next man up but uh the competition down there is ongoing is probably the better way to put it I know from Jock's reporting that the A's minor league system is also pretty thin. I believe he said that Mason Miller is already their best starter. I wonder if there are any other names in the high minors we should be looking at because they would seem to, if you're at all any kind of decent pitcher, you would seem to have a fairly fast track into the Oakland rotation because it's a fairly low bar to clear. Yeah, but in fact, the uh, the real story may be that if you had if, if you had anything to offer, you'd be in Oakland already, right? <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. But, uh, you know, one early standout down there has been uh, Roybert Salinas, who is one of the guys they got in the Sean Murphy trade this offseason. Uh, he's in double A. He's a 22-year-old there. Um, he's hung up a 471 ERA, but with uh, 33 strikeouts to eight walks in just 21 innings. So uh, hard to hit in every sense, shall we say. Um, and that follows up on Blomeyer's work last year, where he was also hard to hit with 175 strikeouts and just over a hundred innings, but uh, you know, a pretty bad walk rate too. So, uh, you know, you can't hit him because, but he'll, he, but he, you go up there not wanting to swing because you might what you have a good chance of walking, and even if you want to hit it, you can't. I guess is the way it goes in the low minors. But uh, we have to see how this skill set progresses up to the majors. Clearly, he can miss back, but uh, you know, this profile often turns into a reliever as they get into the upper minors, right? So uh, that's one of the outcomes we have to watch for here. That's what I thought too, yeah. I know it's between hard and impossible to answer this question, but our expert guests on this week's Friday Full Edition, both of them discuss free agent bidding, and I'm curious how you approach fabbing young pitchers just in general. I like the context and opportunity, and you know, I'm as interested in the pitcher's skills as I am the team context he's coming into in the majors and what his longer term opportunity looks like. I placed a couple of hefty bids on Allen and Bibby from the guardians last week. I won Logan Allen in a couple of leagues and that was as much about not only are those two guys good prospects in their own right, but the opportunity in Cleveland seems pretty wide open but with you know Savali's coming back soon and McKenzie's coming back later in the month but they already optioned Zach Plesak out you know he had been terrible um so it seems like there was room for those guys to stick in this rotation plus I like how the Guardians handle young pitchers in general and the sort of pitching factory that they've developed there so I had more confidence in those guys than I did in going back a couple of weeks ago just to compare him to those two guardians to say Mason Miller who you know from a skills perspective was super attractive but the team context in Oakland is obviously brutal so I was you know I was not the high bidder on Mason Miller anywhere because I wasn't willing to pay because of the team context but I sort of got over that for Bibby and Allen last weekend what are you thinking about Bryce Miller this weekend I think he's going to have a lot of appeal again and I think probably what happens is 
when you think about it, there were, you know, there was only one winner of Bibby and one winner of Logan Allen last week. And if maybe not all of the 13 people in a mixed league or the nine other people in a mixed league, depending on your league size, maybe they weren't all in on those two guys last week, but there were more losers than winners is probably the right way to think about it. And all of those people who didn't win last week are likely to come back to the well and up their bids again this week. So it's probably going to be pretty expensive to get in on that. I may still do it, uh, you know, place a, put, place a healthy bid in, you know, again, evaluating team context. The you know, Mariners are a good team, a good bullpen behind them. Uh, they handle their pitchers fairly well up there. And if I have teams that have, I don't know, I had one, my tout team took the combined Kevin Gossman, Jack Flaherty, 20 plus earned runs yesterday. So, you know, there are places where I could use pitching help, as is the case for, I think, all of us this year. So, you know, I would imagine there's going to be a lot of interest. And if you want them, you're probably going to have to pony up. I think that's correct. Uh, you mentioned that Zach Plesak has already been sent out. Uh, there's some concerns about some of the other pitchers in Cleveland who might be moving on or from whom Cleveland might be moving on, which has opened the door for Logan Allen and uh, I think it's Bybee, Tanner Bybee. But, it could very well be. Yeah, I think uh, that's what I've been hearing on other podcasts anyway. So they are, I think they're giving a start this week to Peyton Battenfield in place of Plesak. I don't know what you think his likelihood of sticking is considering he's a fairly low skill pitcher compared to those other two and compared to the guys who are coming up from injury, especially McKenzie. Yeah, he's definitely part of the picture here. You know, the, the guardians have been running this revolving door in their rotation. So we need to uh, keep all the players straight. And he's definitely a component right now. Um, Batfield's in, uh, he's starting, I think in police acts turn today on Friday. Uh, but, you know, it's certainly less of a pedigree than Bybee and Allen. Uh, a 4% K-minus BB so far, with, including a uh, PQS zero outing against the Rockies a couple of weeks ago, where I think he attracted a little fab interest because it looked like he had a uh, two-star week with, with had some tasty matchups, but yeah. it, didn't, it didn't go well. And now, he's drawing, the, yeah, now he's drawing the Twins tonight. Um, so I think he's the first one out of the rotation which is probably when Savali comes back. And I think Savali's on a rehab now. So that's probably, you know, two starts away or something like that. I would think Battenfield probably pitches tonight. And if, I, I haven't looked at their schedule that close. I don't know if they have an off day and could skip them after this one or if they need them once more. But I would think um, maybe not next weekend, but early the following week is probably when you see Savali slot back in. And that probably bumps Battenfield unless, you know, Bybee or Allen unexpectedly, you know, implode before that, or there's another injury or something like that. Brian Rudd looked at uh, Cleveland's pitching outlook in depth in his coverage of the uh, AL Central in playing time tomorrow. And first he noted that uh, Cleveland seems to be kind of leading the way in being aggressive with promoting these pitching prospects. And it wasn't like the guys they're replacing were really horrible, like Oakland. They had options, but they just said, nope, these guys are pitching well in the minors. We're going to give them a shot, and we'll, I guess we'll see what happens. I think they were fairly confident in both Bybee and in Logan Allen. I don't think Savali is going to be coming up as soon as you do. I, I believe oh, okay. I read in uh, in Brian's column or somewhere recently that he's actually behind McKenzie as far as the uh, oh, that's good to me. arrival. Okay. So 
it looks like uh, Bybee and Allen for sure will have a couple of maybe three weeks worth of starts to to lay down their claims on those rotation spots. And then they have another guy I think we need to watch, a right-hander named Gavin Williams, who was actually outperforming both Allen and Bybee in the minor leagues. Yeah, he's definitely interesting. Uh, his minor league numbers uh, last season were super impressive to the tune of a 196 ERA, a sub one whip, 33% strikeout rate. Uh, that got him, uh, he was actually the number two guy on our preseason award report, uh, you know, our top 15 Indian Guardians prospects ahead of both Bybee and Allen. Um, and he's in double A to start this year and has looked good there. 14 innings, one earned run, a 20 to three strikeout to walk ratio. And then that, of course, you know, dominating double A like that, I'll get you called up to triple A quickly, which happened. And he's got another 10 innings there already with one earned run allowed, 11 strikeouts to five walks. So put those numbers together and, you know, really good, really good work in the high minors in the month of April for Williams. So if you're right and um, McKenzie is the first one due back, which is toward the end of this month. I, he's on the 60 day IL. So he gets out, he can be activated right around the last couple of days of May. Um, so it may very well be that if Battenfield gets knocked around some more, or if anything happens to any of Quattro Bieber, Allen and Bybee, then the next call is Gavin Williams. Yeah, and even if not, I, I think that Gavin Williams might be a step up on Savali, to be honest with you. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Cleveland thinks they have a shot. I think they're going to say, we have to go with the best pitchers we can put on the mound, and never mind uh, the niceties of of uh, playing time, shenanigans, none of that kind of stuff. They seem to be going all in. And frankly, if I was going to pick a pitcher, a young pitcher going on to any team in baseball, I think Cleveland would be at or near the top of my list because they really seem to have figured out how to get the most out of these young guys quickly. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's kind of a corollary of the old saying, there's no such thing as a pitching prospect that teams start handling pitchers this way in the sense of, you know, these guys could all break at any time. So there's really no point in having them sort of quote unquote waste bullets in the minors if their stuff and their maturity and their uh, you know they're built up to be able to pitch in the majors then have them pitch in the majors because you know you know you're just wasting you're just wasting them uh having them on standby in double or triple a if they're one of your five best starters get them up to the majors and the guardians have been you know as you say doing a superior job of developing these guys and really just have the, uh, you know, sort of the assembly line working here. And, you know, it, there have been so many other cases. Um, the Royals come to the mind with their recent flood of pitching prospects in the last couple of years, all of whom, with the exception of Brady Singer, all would get called up to much fanfare and get absolutely smoked, right? <laughs> and it was, right. We, we saw that movie four or five times until we all caught on and we're like, yeah, maybe the next time the Royals call up a guy for their big league debut, we won't get too excited. But the Guardian, you know, the Guardians not only are, you know, in, you know, it's being aggressive with these guys, but they're, but but they're, you know, the track record demonstrates that when they call them up, they're ready. The transitions have largely been smooth, which is another another thing you absolutely have to consider in making your fab decisions. 
Before we leave the American League, uh, it can be hard to say that Tampa has changed the structure of its bullpen since the Tampa bullpen often seems not to have a structure, but the Rays' hand has been forced of late by an injury to the nearest thing they had to a regular close. A right-hander, Peter Fairbanks, went on to the 15-day IL this week with the dreaded right forearm inflammation, and I've heard a rumor somewhere, and I'm sorry I can't remember where, that he's going to be out maybe for the rest of the year. I don't know that that's a fact, though. But in any case, Chris Olsen and covering the story for playing time today. What happens next for the bullpen in a surging Rays team? Yeah, you raise a philosophical question, which is if the Rays bullpen is an amoeba, can the amoeba change its structure or is it just sort of definitionally structureless, right? Well, (laughs) doesn't it uh, divide by mitosis and just keep on going as a copy of itself or something? Exactly, something like that. Yeah, so much for the science class uh, portion of the podcast here. But uh, b- back to the Rays bullpen, yes. Um, very ominous news for Fairbanks. And this is, just to be clear, unrelated to the what was characterized as a relatively minor bout of numbness in his fingers that Fairbanks had last weekend that was related to a sort of ongoing case of Raynaud's synd- syndrome, which Fairbanks has had flare-ups with in the past, especially pitching in cold weather. I think they were in Chicago the other week when this popped up, but apparently completely separate from that sort of minor issue that shelved in for a few days. Now we've got the dreaded forearm strain and yeah, I don't have confirmation of the rumor you heard uh, PD, but it certainly would not be all of that much of a leap to say forearm strain is going to lead to very lengthy absence. So, uh, Jason Adam is probably the favorite for saves now. He picked one up on Thursday, I believe. A um, couple this week, actually. Um, as far as replacing him on the roster, the direct transaction was to activate Chase Anderson, who they had just uh, acquired via trade earlier this week. But that was, uh, and Anderson picked up a save as well, but that was of the three inning mob variety. So the, nothing to see there as far as, uh, you know, the Rays do crazy things in their, in their bullpen, but acquiring Chase Anderson and making him their closer is a step too far, even for the Rays, I would say. Let's move to the National League, and again, we'll start with the hitters. Matt Mervis got called up by Chicago, finally, as fantasy managers are probably saying. Ryan Williams covers the Cubs for playing time today. He expects the move to ripple through the Cubs lineup. and What will be the outcome? Yeah, we were all waiting for this one, PD, right? Because Mervis was the uh, first pitch Arizona poster boy from last uh last fall and it seems like you know our last november in the desert was a very long time ago and it took all the way until first week of may for mervis to uh beat the door down with and then finally get to chicago and that's pretty much what he did although it's a it's a combination of him beating the door down as well as uh you know some some ineptitude at the big league level that forced this change uh eric hosmer the i i hesitate to call him a celebrated acquisition by the cubs this uh offseason but an acquisition nonetheless uh was hitting a pretty empty 250 with uh two home runs so far edwin rios was also getting some corner infield work and batting all of 100 so mervis uh you know has a low bar to clear to do better than those two uh he's been impressive in the minors uh with a 962 ops six home runs so far and 112 plate appearances uh also smoking lefties, uh, so that's a uh, you know small sample size, but not necessarily just a platoon bat here. So uh, even though he was 
a left hand, even though he's a left-handed batter, he uh, was doing damage against left-handed pitching, which might be the last thing the Cubs were waiting for to make this change. So Rios got sent down to the minors to make room for Mervis on the roster. Mervis, we've now installed as the 75% of the time first baseman at the expense of both Rios and Hosmer. I think we have to ask the question about how long Hosmer ends up on this roster too, uh, because I don't know if you keep Hosmer around as just the bad, um, you know, just a backup or bad side platoon partner to, um, that doesn't even work because Mancini would be the bad side platoon partner. So all the more reason to say, I don't know that there's any reason for Hosmer to stay on this roster, even though it was Rios who got sent down. Apparently a good clubhouse guy. Maybe they're uh, letting that account for something. Uh, I know I wouldn't, but uh, may, there's got to be some reason beyond what he's doing with the stick, that's for sure. Uh, Nick Castellanos in Philadelphia was a somewhat hot commodity coming into this season. Not a good season last year, but I think a lot of people were betting the rebound. In facts and flukes this week, our analyst Brant Chesser says 2022 was a fact, but there's reason for optimism that Castellanos can rebound this year. As I said, what's the analysis? Yeah, Brent, I love these breakdowns. Brent did a nice take on Castellanos here. And, you know, just to remind, um, you know, there was some significant skill erosion from Castellanos last year. His expected power index, his barrel rate, QBAB were all down a good bit. So was his hard contact index. Um, and our, and his home run, all of those led to his home run per fly rate being well below his career home run per fly rate. Um, you know, average fly ball distance was down. Exit velocity was down. You know, just a lot of bad things in the skill set. Um, but, you know, the career skills are all, you know, somewhat optimistic of a rebound there. And, you know, I had him in the baseball forecaster this year, and it sounded like there were some, you know, looking at the numbers, there was a, some significant um, indicators that there was either uh, you know a hidden injury or maybe some uh, you know s- some other minor things like that that led to some of that erosion. So um, even if we don't project him to come all the way back to the uh, you know thirty plus dollar value return level for twenty one, uh, that there is um, you know w- with a little bit of uh, good health and. Et cetera, et cetera, you know, that's still a really good lineup as context, especially with uh, Bryce Harper back, good ballpark, et cetera, that, um, you know, a, a most of the way rebounded to say the mid 20s in value instead of the $30 season is probably a comfortable expectation for Castellanos. And finally, let's look at some National League pitchers and some National League rotations. The big news in Los Angeles was that they called up right handed pitching prospect Gavin Stone from AAA. I got to say, Stone wasn't rolling in his first start. His major league debut on Wednesday did not go well. Dan Marcus covers the National League West in playing time tomorrow, and we had a story about it also in playing time today. So what happens with Stone's promotion as far as the rotation is concerned? Yeah, Mark Gannon had it in playing time today too, so we had this covered from both ends, like you said. Uh, the, 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 op, the nominal reason for Stone's call-up to get the start was that they – Skipped Noah Syndergaard for a turn in the rotation. Uh, you know, you'll recall that Syndergaard had a, you know, he's kind of struggled all season and had a, a zero strikeout outing, which I think was only the second or third of his career in his last outing. So I think this was a case where, you know, he hasn't been IL'd. I don't think there's been an announcement of anything physically wrong with him, but I'm s- suspecting that they were doing some mechanical maintenance or working on the side. Um, and Mark does expect uh, Syndergaard to make his next start. Uh, but that said, I, I you know even if for some some people who had some hope that 
the the Dodgers in their magical uh, pitcher rehab were going to unlock the mighty Thor of Midwest decade. I think that um, that ship has sailed. I think we've established that uh, this version of Syndergaard is now a pitch to contact arm. His strikeout rate of fifteen percent, uh, you know, swing strike rate under ten percent. You know, these are not the skills of an above average major league starter in this day and age. Uh, and it's only a one-year deal for the Dodgers, so they took the, uh, you know, they took the flyer, and you know, at least so far they have not unlocked uh, some other level from him. But it also means with a one-year deal, the Dodgers are not uh, beholden to him and can turn to other options like Stone if they want to, if the uh, on the side tune-up for Syndergaard doesn't work here. As for Stone himself, you know, we rated him an 8D prospect, which means him a solid regular potential with a not great chance of reaching that level. Um, he'll probably be on the Oklahoma City to LA shuttle uh, quite a bit this summer, I would expect. But you know, it's only going to take a couple of good starts before they decide that uh, you know he can help them and should stick around. Yeah, it seems like the Dodgers invented <coughs> that whole uh, starting pitcher shuttle system a year or two ago, and they realized that it was a way to basically create an eight-man rotation <laughs> without having to worry about what you're going to do in the bullpen. Uh, Stone is an one of many potential starting pitcher prospects who could make an impact for the team this season. What's the upshot for the Los Angeles rotation besides Stone? Yeah, so for now it looks like as Stone sticks around and Syndergaard comes back into the rotation, they're going to go six-man for maybe a turn or a couple of turns. One of the things that allows them to do is manage Dustin May's innings as he, of course, is coming back from Tommy John surgery and probably has an innings cap to be worried about. Um, so it may be that nobody gets bumped for a little while, but eventually Ryan Pepiot, uh, who was injured and was supposed to be sort of the sixth starter entering the season, uh, he's now throwing and can come off the injured list at the end of the month. He's another one like McKenzie we mentioned earlier, who's on the 60-day IL, which puts him on a, you know, a June 1st-ish eligible to return, whether he's built up by then. But it seems like he is now starting to ramp up toward that. We'll see if he has any setbacks or anything. Um, and then after that, you know, they have Michael Grove, who was taking some starts in April before he ended up with a groin injury. Um, he got replaced by Tony Gonsolin, who started the year on the IL and then got activated. Um, Gonsolin has not looked great as in coming back, but uh, in some sense, he might still be ramping up a little bit. So we'll, I'll, I'll want to wait and see a couple more starts from Gonsolin before I pass judgment, but I would imagine Gonsolin has more leash in this rotation than most of these other guys based on the terrific season he had last year. So, you know, starting from the top, it's Kershaw, it's Urias, and then Gonsolin are all inked in, and then May has the innings concern, and then Grove, Stone, Pepiot, Bobby Miller is going to be seen here sooner or later. He's the team's number two prospect. And let's not forget, you know, Kershaw hasn't hurt his back yet, but we all know that's coming. So there will be more opportunities for, you know, probably more than a couple of these guys to be in the rotation at various times this summer. You know, if your league rules allow it, allow stashing, and it doesn't kind of bind you up as far as the number of reserve spots it takes, I wouldn't mind having a few uh, shots at Bobby Miller right about now, get him for a dollar in, in fab and just put him aside for a while. Because like you said, Gonsolin's been hurt, Grove's been hurt, Pepiot's been hurt. 
Stone is an untested guy and Kershaw is just a time bomb, basically. I mean, I, of course, we all hope that he continues to pitch, but it's not something you can really bet on or, or, or count on. So I wouldn't be at all surprised. I'd take the, uh, I'd definitely take the over on, on how many innings, uh, Bobby Miller might pitch for the Dodgers this year. And he's a really good prospect. So could be, uh, some value to be had there if your league rules allow it and your situation allows it. And finally, the Arizona rotation has had a big change. They finally called up right-hander Brandon fought and his first start Ray was inauspicious, shall we say, a four and a third in Texas, seven earned runs, which works out to a 1350 ERA, nine hits and one walk. So a whip over two. Jake Crumpler covered the story for playing time today. What is the outlook for Brandon Fought? I, he's going to get more chances, I think, you know, despite the first start disappointment. Uh, he's going to stick around unless he pitches exceptionally poorly. Uh, he is not a uh, delicate sports car of a starting pitcher. He's known as you know, sort of a, a workhorse, you know, guy who can eat innings in addition to having really good skills. So I think they're going to uh, give him a lot of rope and try to, you know, maybe you won't see him managed as tightly as some other prospects are when they first come up. Of course, if he gets knocked around like he did in that first start, the hook's going to be quick. But once he establishes that he can get big league hitters out, and I expect that he can, then I would think that uh, he will get uh, – handled a little bit more like a, uh, you know, future workhorse than a, uh, you know, a guy who needs the kid glove treatment. More Pontiac than Maserati, I guess we could say. Uh, Dan Marcus looked at the rotation in playing time tomorrow. Uh, what was his take on what's coming next for those uh, Arizona starters? Yeah, it's really a rotation in transition, like almost generational transition, right? So when Fa comes up, that, that now means that, uh, three-fifths of the rotation have fewer than 10 starts in the majors before this season. You know, Zach Davies, um, you know, sort of your quintessential uh, veteran stopgap is on the IL and throwing a bullpen session this week. But that leaves Tommy Henry, Ryan Nelson, and Fott all in place for a few turns in this rotation. And, of course, you know, Bumgarner got kicked out to make room here, uh, you know, for Nelson a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, Fott was an eight. HC prospect on our prospect scale. Um, so, you know, we, and they didn't, he was knocking on the door in spring training and they sent him out for a while. So I think they, when they called him up, they didn't call him up for a spot start. They called him up just because they think he can stay now. Um, Henry uh, has been unimpressive. He may need to pull things together quickly, or he may be, he may be the one who gets bumped when Davies, who I mentioned a minute ago, comes back. Um, Nelson hasn't been spectacular either, but, um, he hasn't been as bad as Henry. So I would think Henry's the first guy on the chopping block for Davies. Nelson needs to, um, shape up and we'll see what happens after that. There's a marketing slogan for you. Ryan Nelson, not quite as bad as Tommy Henry <laughs> <laughs> and not a, not a easy bar to, uh, trip up on right-hander Dre Jameson. What happens uh, with him? Is he next up if Nelson and Henry don't get it going? Probably, but he got sent out too because he had some work to do. You know, if you remember, he started the year in the bullpen as sort of a multi-inning long relief option. Did really well there. They put him in the rotation. Uh, what I think he was the one who actually got dropped in there when Bumgarner got pulled out of the rotation. And the starts did not go well. So he got sent down to the minors with some very specific instruction from 
Tori Lavulo about the, what to work on and said saying he needs to be able to locate his fastball um, in, in order to set up his slider and his off-speed stuff. So uh, really it's a matter of Jameson that's, you know, inspiring or, you know, establishing some consistency with his arsenal in AAA. If and when he does that, I think uh, he will get uh, – it would not be a stretch to say he gets uh, swapped out for Henry unless Henry actually finds another level that I don't that we don't necessarily think, think he has. Then there's Connor Pilkington hanging around. Um, they just acquired him earlier in this week as a, you know, innings-eating option. It might be that, you know, if Jamison does not get straightened out at some point, Pilkington becomes an option instead of Henry. But uh, those are deck chairs on an ocean liner, I think. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, if Connor Pilkington pops up in your free agent wire, which I'm sure he's going to, I don't think there's any interest there whatsoever. I guess unless he gets into the rotation and throws a no-hitter or something like that or all of a sudden starts striking out 32% of his batters, but hasn't happened so far, so I don't think Connor Pilkington's really worth much of a look. Uh, Ray, thanks very much for helping us out. I do appreciate it, and we'll talk to you again next week. Looking forward to it as always, PD. Thank you. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have our second feature interview with Zach Waxman from the Draft Champions podcast. But let me first highlight another great item on the Baseball HQ site right now. In the Facts and Fluke Spotlight, analyst Stephen Nickrand shines the investigative beam onto Pittsburgh right-handed starter Mitch Keller. The Facts and Fluke Spotlight is another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our second feature expert interview with Zach Waxman from the Draft Champions podcast. Zach, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. It's your first time. Thanks for having me, Patrick. And it's always good to have a fellow Canadian. You're down there in Hamilton, Ontario, which is about, what, about an hour and 20 minutes from Waterloo, where I am? Yeah, if that, maybe less. Depends on traffic, of course. There's a couple of ways of going, too. You can go down the 401 and sit in a traffic jam, or you can go down some of the other sort of surface roads and get there a little quicker. We had our draft. You and I are in a league together, the Canadian A uh, Rotisserie League (laughs) up here and. yeah, we drafted in, in Hamilton, and it was a lot of fun in a little bar. Yeah, I got and, to meet you. It was uh, it was a great time, and I'm happy that I got to meet you as well as some of the other, the other um, opponents in that league. Yeah, there's some good players in that league, and uh, I've talked on the show about <laughs> the uh, disastrous start I had uh, with uh, Edwin. I had Edwin Diaz, Tristan McKenzie, and Reese Hoskins in my first eight rounds or so. And, oh, you uh, did well. Yeah, that was good. Uh, I didn't even get to opening day before I had three <laughs> catastrophic injuries. And uh, so my goal is just not to finish last. I'm going to grind like crazy because I just hate finishing last. But I think I'm 10th out of 15 now or 12th, something like that. But I'm not last. So I'm going to keep going to keep grinding because I don't want to be last. Uh, how many drafts are you playing? I am in uh, 135 leagues. 135 leagues? NFBC leagues. I have other leagues too that are not, not too many, but 135 on the NFPC. If you look at my player shares. Holy moly. How do you find the time? Yeah, it's a lot of time. Um, but, uh, I do have to say that, um, 61 of those, I don't have to touch. Those are either gladiators, which are, or best balls. So basically 
no management, no lineup setting. So amongst the other ones, like I have 35 fab leagues. So that does take me some time on, on Sundays. That's about a four hour routine on a Sunday. Um, and um, yeah, like um, 31 draft champions leagues, a lot of leagues. I like to draft. It's, it's an addicting thing. Yeah, the drafting is one thing, but all that work is is another thing. How do you streamline the work that uh, goes into doing fab runs every week for 35 leagues? Well, I've been doing it for two years now. Um, I keep saying I'm going to tone down the the draft, uh, the drafting. But um, basically, I um, I have a sheet that uh, have has all my targets on it, and the new and then uh, so I know who I'm throughout the week. I'm sort of making notes and. Um, the new fab feature is actually pretty good. So you just make the watch list in the NFBC and then you can import the watch list to all of your leagues. So all the people that I'm interested in get imported to every single, all 35 leagues. And then I make one and then I, then I make a claim list um, based on all of that. And then I look at my drops. So I say, um, who, which players can I drop and what do I need? And basically my first say, like I have a player that's out for the season, like a Robbie Ray, uh, my entire uh, watch list will stay in for that one claim on Robbie Ray. And I'll just order that list. Um, accordingly to how I want, um, how much I want those players. And then I'll copy that list onto the next drop. And then the next drop might be a player like, um, Leody Tavares. And maybe only half of that watch list will be added for that player because there'd be players in my watch list that I wouldn't want to replace Tavares with. And then I just, each league is different. Like I'd certain, uh, certain, sometimes you need a corner infielder. Moncada got injured. So I, I need to have one of those claim lists dedicated to corner. So, um, that, that new feature helps a lot, but it, it is some, it is some work, but I've just become so like, um, uh, robotic in terms of the routine that like, once I get to the third league, I know how to order my, my claims. And I know how much I'm bidding. And I basically, a lot of the leagues are the same in terms of my drops and my ads. So, um, it, yeah, it takes a good four hours in, uh, on a Sunday. Well, we'll talk a little bit in a minute about how to set those fab bids because I think that's something that people always struggle with. And uh, I talked with Derek Carty earlier about valuations and probabilities and stuff like that, which was pretty interesting. So I'm really curious about your take. Somebody who does it as much as you do, and uh, you you have an accounting background, so you know your way around the dollars. So I'm curious about you what your process is for figuring out how much to bid in addition to which players to bid on. Uh, how are your teams doing amongst the 135? They're doing okay. I've got some good ones. I've got some bad ones. Um, nothing um, crazy good right now, but um, I think um, I've got a, a couple contenders for these overall contests, like contenders. Um, but like, and I think we'll get into this. I drafted so early that some of these teams are just, just dead. Like I have teams like 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 the like the team you were describing with Edwin Diaz. I got I think I have a Diaz Story Altuve team and an OC. Just like some of these teams are very hard to come back from with uh, how early I drafted and how many injuries. Um, people don't even talk about Frankie Montas anymore. But I drafted so early that I had him on some gladiators, and you can't even do anything about that in terms of fab. So um, it's a it's a high variance um, it's a high variance uh, portfolio right now. And for those listening who aren't familiar with the uh, NFBC environment, you, the Gladiators you said is a, just a draft and hold, and that's it. You just draft your twenty-three men and go forward. Yeah, it's it's like the best. The, the NFBC has the best bold format, which you, it's I think forty-six rounds. Yeah, and it just optimizes your lineup. However, the Gladiator is not a points format, so it's a way to get it into the rotisserie format. But the only way to make that a best ball is to only have 23 spots. So you don't have a bench. So when I draft a player like Frankie Montas 
um, despite um, the advice of Jason DuPont, who's a Red Sox fan. Um, and, like you can't do anything about that. You're just you're just really out of luck. So those teams and and yeah, there's no bench. That's a one twenty third of your team or whatever. Um, maybe more because your catchers aren't that valuable. But oh, overall, but um, yeah, that hurts a lot. <laughs> So they call I mean, it gladiator because basically it's the guy with the last roster standing. Yeah, and speaking of Dupont, that's he's the one that came up with that um, the name for it. So yeah, that's basically it. It's just this, the, whoever can survive it is what it's going to come down to. What uh, batters do you have on a lot of your rosters who have panned out for you? Let's give a shout out to Jared Kalenic. Yeah. I started to get very much in on him. Not until probably about January and I started to think about it and just look at his cost. And I was very uh, tentative at first to draft him because my thoughts were, you can't draft him as a starter. Then I started looking at the other players that are going in the top 23 rounds. And I thought to myself, yeah, you can. um, Because you thought the thinking was he, he was a platoon at best, but strong side. But all the tools were there, and I was looking at him, especially when spring training started. I started looking at what he was doing and actually watching him. And um, very few prospects that have that pedigree, and um, despite the strikeout rate, really fail. Like, you can point to Joe Adele, and you can say he failed. But even Byron Buxton was bad at first, and he does have the strikeout rate, but then he turned into a fantasy a big fantasy asset despite his injury history. And you look at what Kalenic's done over the course of his career, like his roto juice, like the home runs and stolen bases, they're there. Just the average was bad. Um, so if there's any way to get that average up, even to a respectable amount that just for what his cost, the payoff was so good. And then when the main event started getting, uh, getting around, like his cost did go up, but what he was doing in spring training, it just, it just looked like, Things just might click for him, um, and um, and yeah, I just I just said you know what he's a guy that I want on my teams. And what about uh, any pitchers that you drafted a lot of and panned out for you? My most owned player is Hunter Green. I saw you were wearing a Reds jersey during our draft. Yeah, I got some Hunter Green uh, shares myself, and uh, pretty happy with it so far. I have to say he's been good. Um, had, like the the wins are not there, but I think he's going to be good. Zach Wheeler hasn't been like his results haven't been good, but I have a lot of him. It looks like um, he's really come on. I think he's won the la- his last three outings, and um, he could be given the landscape of how kind of crappy pitcher's been. If he um, continues on this path of some some good starts, he could. Still early, it's been a month. He could end up being one of the top pitchers in MLB when it's all said and done because his strikeouts are there. He's on a decent team with Harper back. So um, he's a player that I'm happy that I have a lot of, even though his results haven't been totally great. I see it really trending in the right direction. That's a really interesting thing that uh, people have to be aware of. It's so easy these days with the computers and what have you to just drop a guy who gets off to a slow start and you have to be willing to be patient with a guy that you believed in at the start of the draft that you, that you didn't make a mistake. And sometimes that'll hurt you. But in the long run, I think if you look at a guy like Wheeler, he's got a decent track record, has you know plus skills. It would have been actually foolish to drop him based on a couple of early starts that didn't go your way. And, and I think that's a, a real important lesson for fantasy managers to learn is don't be hasty, especially with guys who have track records. Yeah, I think a, a, maybe a better example of that would be 
another player that I have a lot of, not quite as much, but somebody that people might be actually more inclined to drop. I don't know if people are going to drop Wheeler, but Blake Snell. So he's a guy that is walking a lot of guys. And he's starting off slow as he did last year, but um, I would be patient with Snell as well. Um, he's got all the skills. He might not have, he might have uh, something wrong with his head, but um, I think he's a good pitcher and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, be impatient with him either. That having been said, uh, what players do you have in a lot of your rosters who haven't panned out and do you think you don't need to be patient anymore? Players that haven't panned out, like there's a lot of, in, like I said, a lot of injuries. I have, I have um, 42 shares of Jose Altuve and he hasn't seen the light of day yet. So I guess like um, a non-injury example of a player that hasn't panned out is I have a lot of Jordan Walker across my leagues. I have 38 shares of him, which is 28% of my portfolio. Um, he just got sent down. So I'm not dropping him in leagues where it's a fab league. I'm going to hold on. And um, that that team seems like something needs to change. Um, there might be managerial change soon. Um, they're doing poorly. Um, you saw uh, Paul DeJong start six of the first eight games he was back. And now, like, all of a sudden, he's a part-time player. Carlson's playing full-time again. And it's just so much fluidity, fluidity going on in the team that I think it would be foolish to drop Walker at this point. You know, a guy on that team that I have uh, here and there is uh, Nolan Arenado, uh, third round-ish sort of pick, and gosh, he's been just brutal this year. And I think he's in a situation where I can't drop him because the potential is still there that if whatever's wrong with him, barring injury, of course, there could be a hidden injury there as well. I think uh, Ryan Bloomfield cover mentioned him in uh, at Baseball HQ in the Speculator column as a possible hidden injury type of guy. But I'm stuck with uh, Nolan Arenado. What do you do when you've got a guy like that? Do you just simply have to ride it out, or when do you give up? You have to hold him, I think. I think. Um, but um, he's not. He's a player that I, I have zero of 135 leagues. Um, I felt he was a player, and I guess I'm – this is when I guess the podcast doesn't agree with each other. You liked him. I just thought that um, – the the perceived scarcity of third base was, uh, was, uh, I don't know, market inefficiency in terms of inefficiency in terms of inflating his cost too much. I saw him go in the second round sometimes in, in even in draft champions leagues, uh, just because people did not want to get shut out of third base. They weren't comfortable with Matt Chapman or Brian Hayes later on. Um, and they just, um, you saw all the, I think the top three third basemen go early second round, um, I don't know. I just didn't get it. What, uh, I guess maybe throw it back to you. Like what did, what, why did you have a lot of Arenado? What did you, what did you see in the preseason? Nothing. And I didn't like Nolan Arenado at all. I was just really worried that I didn't want to be stuck getting a, a second tier third baseman because there was such a big drop in the tiers. I mean, had I had the vision to see what Matt Chapman was going to do, of course I would have waited and grabbed Matt Chapman, who's only been the player of the month for uh, the American League and has, what, a 420 on-base percentage or something and all those home runs and RBIs. And he looks like a different hitter. But, of course, you don't see that in spring training often. You know, he he changed his approach. He's hitting to the to the right center sort of area instead of trying to pull everything, and it's working for him. There's a couple of guys on Toronto actually who are seem to have 
adjusted their approach and it seems to be working for them. I think the 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 main driver of me having Nolan Arenado was I just didn't want to get shut out because Machado was gone, uh, Austin Riley was gone, you know, the, so it was it starts to look pretty pretty grim if you don't get Arenado when your turn comes up and you think, "Oh boy, <laughs> you know, I need something and he's it." And I but I didn't like him. You know what? I I wasn't. I, I have to admit, I wasn't really in on Chapman. I think I have very few Ch- Chapman. I didn't. Uh, didn't. I didn't see the value where he was going because I thought he would hit for a poor batting average. But I was completely wrong on that. However, I was comfortable, uh, especially when the when I have done I had done all my research and I was in the, the big traps to to go with Cabrian Hayes because my thinking with him was that I think he could steal twenty bases um, at that third base position and. Bobby Witt is a first round pick and um, we don't expect him to hit for an exceedingly high batting average. He's sort of one of those only players, only bats in the first round that really um, you can't, I don't think the consensus expected him to hit for like even a 270 average. I think maybe people expected him to hit for a 250, 260 average. That's what I sort of had him pegged at. And um, for him to go that early in drafts ahead of like the likes of Machado and Freeman and stuff like that in a lot of drafts, um, I think, um, at least I was, I was banking on those stolen bases from that corner position because that's such an edge. It's sort of like what Varsho gives you at catcher and what and why Jose Ramirez is such a top five pick every year. And just extrapolating that sort of concept to Cabrian Hayes, I just thought he was just like an extremely undervalued asset um, when you don't look at him in, in a vacuum, when you look at him across the landscape of fantasy in the Roto, the Roto world and what we have available to us. I just thought like him at pick whatever it was at 150, 170. I'm like, man, like whatever, whatever else is upside, like he's got, he's shown it before. Um, like I thought it was just a smash pick and he hasn't been great so far, but still early. We'll see what happens with Cabrian Hayes. Um, he might not be the player that like, is that, is that flashy, but I don't know. That's sort of my thought on that, um, speed of the corners. And, and we'll, that's a little prelude to our, um, fab discussion, uh, some boon hitters that I have. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Zach Waxman from the Draft Champions podcast. And Zach, you post a weekly fab review on Twitter from NFBC main event leagues. So you've collate all the information from all the main event leagues every Monday. How long have you been doing this? I have been doing it since um, the first week of the season. And I even was compiling the data since the first week of last season. So I have two years worth of data. So I do have some comparisons to see how the trend of spending compares to last year, which is the second full season after um, the short season. Yeah, about two years I've been doing this data, but I've been putting the reports out just on Twitter for free just to see who's interested in it since the start of the year, maybe, but maybe, maybe not since the beginning, maybe, I don't know, a couple of weeks now. So you collect all this data. What do you do to slice and dice it and make it usable for yourself and for your readers? So, yeah, the, the, the thing that, the thing that I, my complaint with the NFBC, it's not really a complaint, but my, um, there's an opportunity to make the data more usable. Um, people have all these crazy team names. Right. And you don't know who it is, but you want to know. But there's a lot of transparency in the NFC. You know who you're playing against, unlike when you're using fan tracks or something like that. You know, like I know I'm playing against Patrick Dabb. I know I'm playing against like Phil Dussault. Uh, I know who's in my league. But when you do the when you run the report for Fab and you see who's adding who, it just has a team name. So I wanted to find a way how to see exactly 
your legal name, who's adding who, because a lot of people try to hide that for on purpose or, or not deliberately. Um, so what I did was I copy and pasted the ads, but it had the team name, but I, but what I had to do is I had to take the overall standings and, um, which has the actual, your person's name in the overall standings has the name and it has a team and using some concatenation. So, um, concatenating cells, which is, um, combining cells, uh, what's in one cell with another cell along with a value lookup. I was able to put together a sheet that, um, spits out exactly, um, who, who added who, um, how many times a player was added and using some pivot tables, uh, I was able to create some, create some reports that basically automatically populate. So all, all I need to do is just copy and paste the, the fab results into a sheet and everything spits out automatically for me. So basically it was a combination of the concatenation function, the value lookup and some pivot tables to get this report going. Well, you mentioned the, the start of the process is getting the data into the Excel sheet or Google sheet, I don't know, but uh, getting it into the spreadsheet. And when I was looking at it, I thought to myself, do you have to go through all however many 75 leagues and manually copy them or automatically copy them in to start the process? Or is there someplace where it's all collated into one big table? Or are you, you're, are you generating the table? You go into the NFBC, um, if you go into the um, stats, there's a, there's, if you go into any one of your pages, you go to stats. If you go to, first of all, you need to be in one of your team. You go to stats and then there's a tab for player movement. And then you go to player movement. And then what you have to do is there's a, it's a condensed view. So it shows like all the players that were added. And you just, you just take the condensed view and you move it to the full view. And then you sort by the game style, which is the main event. And that gives you a complete table of who was added and who was dropped. Huh, I'll try that. It looks interesting. Uh, so the, the, the end result is, you know, what the various owners are doing, regardless of how many teams they have, and you know, what players are being added and dropped. What does, what do you learn from that? Yeah. So how is this, um, how is this useful? And I always, and I, and I'm, I always say that all these, um, fab review pods are pointless and I, and maybe people think that is, um, hypocritical because I'm doing this fab report. But I think if you look into it, there's some foreshadowing in it. Um, you don't like, I think it's interesting and not useful in some ways in terms of like, okay, last week who added Mason Miller? Like, how's that going to help you? Like just because someone that you perceive as a good player added Mason Miller, does that really matter to you? I, I don't think so. But I think what you can look at is you can look at um, trends. So first of all, the first thing I look at is, how is spent? How is Fab being spent this year compared to last year? And if you look at that report, the first thing that I say is, um, we've spent thirty-seven point four percent of the Fab in the main event. So Fab is being spent more quickly than last year, which was thirty-one point eight. So we're on on average three hundred and seventy-three dollars have been spent per team. Last year was three hundred and seventeen at this time. So there's less money to be spent going forward. So that's important to know in terms of how you're going to make your bids. And I don't think there's any mathematical calculation in terms of how you make, how you, how you should make your bids. Um, I don't think there's like any formula that sort of tells you what you should make, what, what bid you should do. I think it comes from experience and knowing what happened last year. And I think this report also gives you uh, the 2002 data. So like what, who was being added last year? So if you look at the end of the report that I that I have, it's helpful because you can see George Kirby went for an average of $339.63. So we got a guy, Bryce Miller, 
Um, he's not not quite the. I don't think he's quite the stand like George Kirby was standalone the guy to add last year. I think there's a lot of guys to add this year. Um, and you can look at other other players like um, Max Meyer. So he went for like 90 something last year. And it, you really have to be cognizant of when that player was added because um, you see Dustin May was added last year for like an average of 140 dollars. But he might have been three hundred dollars if he came uh, if he became available earlier in the year. So it's 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 a function of knowing um, one how is global fab trending, two how is your league trending, who uh, what what tendencies do, do some of the players in your league have, like um, a Dalton Del Don or a Bob Cramutola or no Bob not so much this year, but a Del Don or a Eric Haberlig. All of these players you you know have a tendency to bid big early. So you know that if you really want the player, you might have to go really big if you're in one of their leagues. But also knowing um, the report also, the, the more detailed report also shows how everyone's spent in your league. And you can see that anyways. But um, it's a matter of like knowing what we, what we how much is left in terms of your league, what global spend is, and just having your ear to the ground in terms of um, A, like what did this profile go for last year like you see nolan gorman go for huge money in week eight last year so you can sort of anticipate what a big bat would have gone for at this time at this time like what big bats are going to become available to to purchase this year like what prospects are going to be coming up um like if when royce lewis comes back how much does he go for like you can look at last you can look at what he went for last year i think it was recently i think he's in this report so like well it looks like he was added in three leagues in week seven coming which of 2022. So that would be week seven coming up for us. And his average cost was $130 in week seven. So there's all kinds of nuances and, and, and context that, that are missing in there. Um, but you can look at Alec, Alec Thomas going for 186 last year. So really a lot, it's very incestuous, these main events, uh, especially in the main events, um, the same players are playing every year. So you can sort of know that, there is going to be some sort of consistency in terms of like how much these profiles are going to cost you. So knowing the history is important. Um, knowing how things are trending are important. And also some players aren't added in all leagues. Like you look at in the last report I had, I focused on, on um, Michael King. He was added in, I think um, looks like about 17, 20 leagues. You look at guys like Rob DiPietro added him in for a dollar. Mark Schreiber at him for five dollars. How much is he going to be next week? What do these guys, What do these guys think? What do these guys know? So, even if Michael King didn't get those saves, then this month, this uh, this week, then would you be interested in him anyways? Because it's sort of like a good gut check. Like, why are these players adding them? And also, who's getting dropped? Some players that are tough drops. You can look at are the, are the best players dropping these players? And it, give, it will give you a sort of a, an inkling to, to know whether or not these players should be added or dropped. Yeah, I was reading the thing and that's exactly what I thought, especially, of course, if the guy happens to be in your league or do, doing what, something in this league that isn't in your, the league you're with him in, but you're learning what he likes to do and how he might behave in the future. And I think the parallel might be if you're playing in a home league or a smaller league, not not in an NFPC kind of thing with a lot of overall uh, ramifications to your choices, but start keeping track uh, of what your opponents are doing, not just for week to week, 
but have their whole year from the previous year, especially in a keeper league where you play with the same guys every year, it will help you to next year to know what they did this year. Like you said, it's important to know whether somebody's willing to go all in early or whether he's hoarding and keeping his money for late. All of these kind of things will help you make better choices when it comes time to setting your amounts for fab bids. And actually, in your Draft Champions podcast recently, you and your co-host, Mike the Mouth is the only name I know him by. I'm sorry if he has a last name, but I don't know what it is. Masato. Okay, Mike Masato. You guys discussed what would be a reasonable fab bid for Chris Bubich of Kansas City after he had a strong start. This is a while ago. And you agreed that 20 to $40 was what he was worth-ish, you called it. But then you added that a lot of actual bids weren't actually in that range at all. And in fact, they went from a few bucks to over 200 And you're talking about some of the smartest fantasy players in the business. So why is the range so large and it's still reasonable? An important concept when you're when you're working with fab is separation of what you perceive the value of this player as and what the market will perceive the value of the player as and i think when when calculating the bid i want to make on a fab for a player i look at both things there's really three parts to it what do i think the player's worth in terms of range of outcomes um, what he's going to add for me, what my team needs are. And in this case, let's say Chris Bubik. I think he was somewhere between a 20 and $40 player in terms of like his whole portfolio, in terms of his range of outcomes and what he can do for me and my needs for Roto. However, I think I got luck at the market value. You're on Twitter. You're talking to other people and um, you're, you're sort of getting, a, you have your ear to the ground. You got your finger on the pulse. You like, and you, you, you have a lot of experience a lot of leagues doing fab. So you're like, okay, I think this player is probably going to go between 50 and hundred dollars because people are, people don't act rationally. So the third part of this is where do you want to be? Do you want to, do you want to pay for what you think he's worth? Or do you want to overpay based on what you perceive the market is? And that's really a decision you're going to have to make that will depend on how much money you have left, um, how much you you need that player, despite what you think he's worth in a vacuum. I think that's excellent advice. And it really underlines the difficulty of calibrating these bids, because as I said, when I was talking with Derek, there's so many variables that you have to consider over and above the probability of a guy earning a particular amount for you for the rest of the season and and how much you're willing to spend because it's all contingent on all of these other people doing what they're going to do. And as you said, some of them are going to be aggressive. Some of them are going to be conservative. Some of them are really good at this. Some of them not so good or not so rational. It's, it's a really tough thing. I think figuring out a way to manage your fab is going to be increasingly important as the value of your draft savvy declines with the amount of information that comes out about that stuff. You mentioned that the main event teams last year had spent $300 plus through week four, which was above what you'd expect if you just divided it out, I guess. And then you challenged readers to guess how many teams who spent really heavily early finished in the top 35 in the overall. How many was it and what's the lesson? The number was two. Bobby Big Bucks. I don't know if you know who I'm referring to, but his name is Bob Cramitola. Sure. He won the main event overall last year. Yeah. 
And he was the only one that had over $500 spent at that time. Um, one other player, I think it was Santino, had over 300 uh, spent, and um, he actually finished in the top 35 as well. So it was only two players. So I think the lesson is that um, if you look at it on a percentage basis, is that um, if you spent over, I guess, $300 that early, I think if you're if you were uh, if you were spending not cautiously, that didn't translate well to how you finished at the end of the year. I'm not saying that it's not, I'm not saying that it's a bad strategy to do, to, strategy to do that, but look at Bob, great player. He fabbed Kyle Wright, uh, Tony Gonsolin and Spencer Strider. So he did spend a lot of money and um, he had those three big hits. He had some misses too, um, but he shot a shot and he wrote, he rode those guys all the way to $175,000. So there's a lot of ways to skin the cat here. But I think the the play is is like using Fab is sort of like being in an auction in one of these um, auctions that you play. Um, do you want to spend early? Do you want to do you want to spend a lot early, or do you want to wait for some of the deals that come later? And you never know um, when the deals are going to come. So my thing is like you see Taj Bradley, Mason Miller, the Cle- the Cleveland pitchers. All these players are going for two hundred dollars plus in Fab, and I'm just going to sort of my strategy's sort of been waiting it out. And I have the advantage of being in a lot of leagues and um, just capitalizing on the ones that fall. So I've, I've gotten some Mason Miller, I've gotten some Taj Bradley, but I haven't spent over $200 on, on either of them. I think the most I spent on Mason Miller was $112. So I sort of snuck in some, some cheap shares and I'm hoping to get those guys on teams where I, I can save some money and, and be competitive later with those players. I don't want to have a team that has, a $300 hole in their pocket because they bought one of those players when there's going to be a lot of those players come out. I think people are going to blow their load on me on Bryce Miller, um, which I won't be doing again. I, I didn't do it with Taj. I'm not going to be spending a big amount of money um, as it stands right now. Um, I think I'd rather take shots on several of these pitchers coming up later. People know Matthew Libertor is coming up. You're going to have uh Tiedemann on the Jays. There's going to be Bobby Miller. There's going to be Kyle Harrison. There's going to be a lot of these similar players. And if you're smarter than me and you know that one of these players is going to be the guy, then power to you. But I don't. I'm not that skilled to tell you which one of these minor league pitchers are going to be is going to be the one. I don't know. I can't. I can't with a high enough confidence to rank these minor league pitchers to tell you how their skills are going to translate on their major league team in their first year. That I'd rather spend less and take my shot on two or three of them than take my shot on one of them. And that makes a, a total amount of sense, especially with young pitchers. It's uh, it's really a crapshoot to that, that's for sure. Now, your Draft Champions pod and the Weekly Fab Report on Twitter are focused, I guess we could say exclusively on NFBC. How can non-NFBC fantasy managers use the information? Well, they should just copy what the NFBC players are doing because the NFBC players are better. <laughs> I'm just joking. Um uh, uh, actually, I don't think it's a joke. I mean, these are people who are putting up a lot of money to play. And I'm not suggesting that because you're willing to spend $1,750 US to participate in the league makes you smarter than somebody who isn't. In fact, it might be the reverse. If you're not yeah. good at it, you're throwing $1,750 down a, a bottomless pit. But the fact is that most of the guys in those leagues are pretty good. We've talked enough about my co-host, Mike Masato for the day. We don't need to talk about people throwing $1,750 down the drain. 
<laughs> okay, so back to the question. What can these uh, non-NFPC fantasy managers do with the information beyond just saying, well, hey, look, uh, you know, Phil Dussault is doing X. I should be thinking about copying his lead or following his lead. I think you see a lot of managers um, uh, in the main event, because it's so competitive, uh, think multiple weeks ahead. And you have to now. I think it's become so competitive. So I think if you're in a home league and say you're in a weekly league, um, like I'm just thinking about something like I'm not trying to toot my own horn here because this is just something that I remember that I was doing. I picked up Josiah Gray two weeks ago because he had matchups against the Mets and the Pirates. So the Pirates are a good matchup. The double start week. Then he then he faces Arizona this week. Then San Francisco. Then he's got another two start week, Miami, Detroit. And then Kansas City. So those are five weeks of like super good matchups. So like two start match Pittsburgh, he did great. A great ad in hindsight. I think he's got Arizona this week. And then San Francisco, which is another good matchup. Then again, a double start, Miami, Detroit. You don't get better than that. And then Kansas City. So Josiah Gray, sort of a guy that fell out of favor. Um, people didn't really weren't really too interested in him in draft season because He's on a bad team, and he, he he didn't perform too well last year. Um, even his velocity looked a little bit down this year, but in spring training, his velocity was up. So there is some upside, but the matchups, right? If you're in a competitive league, it's hard to find starting pitching in a 15-team league. So um, not saying that like people should copy me, but that's I added him in a bunch of leagues um, with with that in mind. And I don't think in home leagues you really need to think that far ahead um, because. Really, you just you're living on the moment, and there's there's not as much it's there's not enough on there's not as much on the line, and people aren't really aren't really putting as much time into it. So I think if you look at that, you can you can see like that's just an example I remember because I did it. I'm sure there's other other great examples of like Drew Smiley had has the the Washington Miami start this week. People added him in advance. Um, people that weren't me, I think people saw that and just you know matchups, playing matchups, you know. Um, these main event managers are adding players that are that are going to cores and, and playing in, in Cincinnati Stadium two weeks from now because they don't want they want to get them for a dollar or two instead of like twenty in the future. So I think that's one definitely an, an obvious point that you can point to, like looking at what main event players are doing and how that can help you in your in your league. Looking ahead beyond the week that is immediately coming. There's lots of resources, including at baseballhq.com, that will say here are the here are the pitcher matchups for the coming week. But as you said, the trick is sometimes to look out to the next week and the week after that, which gets a bit problematic because things happen, rainouts, and sometimes they skip a guy for one reason or another to get everybody else on five day rotations and stuff. But it's important to know what the matchups are going to be two or three weeks down the road. Do you have a resource that? where somebody has done the work basically for you and, and forecasts three weeks out for who the probable pitchers are. Because right now what I'm doing is I'd take this week because it's just there, but for the subsequent weeks, I have to go find the schedule and then sort of manually map out the five man rotation or the five day rotation into those extra weeks. And frankly, I'd rather somebody else do the work. Do you have anybody who does the work? No, I do it myself. I do it all manually. Um, I, I, I look at the schedule and I map it out myself and I know things change and that's a good point, but you can only use the information that's, that's given you at the time. And that's the best information right now. And yeah, things could should change in your favor. Things could change out of your favor, but I'm of the belief that you need to do things yourself. And um, I, I want to improve with this game. And I think if you're using other resources, that's fine. But I think the best way to get better is to 
if you want things, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And um, a lot of the resources out there are great, but um, I trust my own work, and I I don't I don't really use anything. The only thing the only the only thing I really use is the reliever recon charts, which is great. I'll give that a shout out. That's that's really the only thing I use that's outsourced, and just in terms of looking at the closers. But um, now I basically do all my own work. I think that's interesting. I do too, uh, with uh, uh, bullpens and with pitcher forecasting or probable pitcher forecasting. And I think doing it, actually, when I say manual, I don't even mean typing it into an Excel sheet. I mean writing it down by hand. And I have, uh, you know, the, the schedules written out and I just manually write in who's pitching and what they what it looks like because it's really noticeable if you do it by hand because you have to cross out guys who get skipped, for instance. Well, why did he get skipped? You know, and that gives you a reason to go look at why he got skipped. Was he hurt? Was he just ineffective? Is he out of favor with the manager? You know, what are these reasons? And you, it, it's work to keep the three-week or four-week forecast up to date because it's constantly changing, as you said. But it's also worth doing the work because it, I think it gives you a little bit deeper understanding of what the teams are doing to manage that situation. And I should say I only do this for my American League only because that cuts the work in half and it's the league that most interests me. But I think manually doing more of the work is an advantage. And I know quite a few good NFBC players and good competitive sort of multi-league players like that, high, high stakes players, they do a lot of work with pencil and paper. Yeah, look at Matt Modica's um, draft sheets that he posts. It's all on the grid paper. And before we leave this topic, uh, I wonder if you could summarize uh, how can we accurately calibrate our weekly fab bids knowing that there's so much imprecision in it? It's really difficult. Um, like when I played that at 12-team OCs, online championships, it's like, it's a wild west. You can't. I don't, I don't believe you. there's just so much variance in terms of like not the different opponents and uh, different leagues, but in like in a main event, um, like I said, look at last year, look at what the similar profiles are going for. Um, also calib- calibrate it based on profile and calibrate it based on what week you're in and how much, how much, how much fab everyone has left. Like I said, Dustin may went for like 130, $140 last year because there was like a month or two left in the season. If people had more money, he'd be going for three, $400 at the time because he's the last player left um, calibrated based on like what's going to be come available in fab later. Like the pitchers, the, the, the prospect pitchers that are coming up right now, there's still lots to be, there's still lots to be coming up later. So I, I can see you spending a, a good chunk of your fab. If you perceive this to be the last chance to get a difference maker, but I believe there to be many other different difference makers coming too. So I think those are, three ways to calibrate it. But in terms of a actual calculation, like using like accounting, I don't think there is. I think it's just experience in, in the leagues. I think that's right. And, and paying attention to what your opponents are doing in the year you're in. If you happen to know what they did in past years, that's even better, but you know, look at how they bid and uh, on the bids they lose because you can see that stuff usually on most uh, um, fab pr- presentation. Oh shit, I fucked that up. Yeah, look at all your leagues trending. Like, um, I'm in one league main event with um, uh, Ryan Bloomfield is in my league. I'm sure you know who that is. Yeah. Um, in in this league, he won Tanner Bibby and Mason Miller. And he won them both for the lowest bid of all 53 main event leagues. So he was he got he got both of those players the cheapest out of anyone. And I'm in that league. 
So what does that tell me if I'm in that league? If I want a top-tier player, I'm probably going to have to bid less in that league than my other league. So if I'm bidding on, say, Michael King or whatever, I'm just giving him as an example this league, I might be bidding $60 in that league or I'm bidding $80 in the other league because I know that everyone must be a little bit more conservative on average. If this guy, if Ryan's got these two top players two weeks in a row and at the lowest cost of cross 53 leagues, that's not a coincidence. Your league's conservative. Well, as you said, it's, it's uh, a lot of art rather than science, I think is the best way to put it because it's a personal kind of decision. It's based on so many things that are out of your control that you just have to you know, rely on your gut as much as your head, I think is uh, how I'd like to say it. And Vlad Settler, of course, calls it roto gut. He calls himself that. And he's a really good guy at this fabbing stuff. And it's partly because he doesn't rely on algorithms or these kinds of things. He has a good idea of what a player might be worth and then a good idea of what the, how the market's going to respond to what that guy's worth, which is two different things, and you have to keep that in mind. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Zach Waxman from the Draft Champions Podcast. And Zach, as you know, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. And since we've been talking about fab, let's do your boons and banes for this weekend's fab run. We'll start with your boons. These are players who look like they could be good value in this weekend's free agent pool. Uh, who's your batter who could be a boon? Uh, batter, I'll go um, Michael Garcia, just because I, I promised I'd allude to um, the speed at the corners. He's played third base two games since he's been called up. That could be valuable. I don't know if he's going to continue to play every day. His team's kind of crappy, but... Um, should be 100% available to you, unless you have daily pickups. He's a bat. I don't know. There's a couple others. Willie Calhoun, that Yankees team is decimated. He looks like, if you, if you watch him, it doesn't look like he'd be capable of playing any position defensively, which I don't think he is. Because, um, but he might be playing a lot, and he's got some power. Um I don't know, I can list them. Like CJ Abrams has has been dropped in probably some of the twelve team leagues. People are getting frustrated. He's a top prospect. Last thirty nine plate appearances, he's, he's hitting two ninety seven, two home runs, one stolen bases. I don't know. CJ Abrams figuring it out. Is he heating up? Now is the time to get him because um, I've noticed in, the, in these in these high stakes leagues, um, um, you got to be willing to be wrong because you, you can't wait to be right. I've said that before. Um, it's just too competitive. So. Um, it might it might already be too late. You can't you you got to be willing to be wrong on it. So you got to pick pick him up if you if you think it if you think he might be turning the corner because week from now another hot week he could be one hundred and fifty dollars instead of twenty dollars. How about a pitcher who's in the free agent pool that could be a boon? Um, uh, Dylan Dodd. Um, his schedule's not good. I looked at his schedule coming up today. Um, however, Kyle Wright went on the IL. Um, he could be someone that's um, that's that's in a, uh, in a rotation on a good team. Kenyon, Kenyon Middleton, um, he, I think he, he might be the best or only good pitcher right now, but that could be temporary because um, God bless Ian Hen- um, Kyle Hendricks, not Kyle Hendricks, Liam Hendricks. Yeah, Liam Hendricks, a great story. Let's go to the Baines now, uh, players who will fab for more than you think they're likely going to be worth. Who's a batter that's going to be overpaid for in fab this weekend? Um, 
I don't know. Maybe um, I couldn't think of one before to prepare, but maybe DeJong, Paul DeJong. Um, just that Cardinals team or, or Dylan Carlson, someone on that team, because I've, I feel there's a lot of like fluidity to that fluidity there. Um, I added DeJong last week. I don't know if he was added everywhere, but people could be piggybacking on people adding him last week. And he's now sitting versus righties, whereas he was playing more than Edmund before. So, and then Carlson's playing every day, but like, are people going to go at Dylan Carlson? Like, is he good? Like, I think those are maybe some fool's gold this week. Um, for batters yeah that st louis situation is really difficult to kind of figure out they, they don't seem to know what they're doing from the top down and they're kind of throwing everything at the wall and see what sticks and then if it sticks for a week it doesn't matter because then they throw more mud and find a different wall it's it's really hard to calibrate what they're doing over there and that makes it hard to make uh, accurate assessments of playing time and that, that's really important who's a pitcher who could be a free agent bane this weekend Maybe Bryce Miller, in term, just in terms of the cost. I think pe- people are going to be spending $300 on him because his schedule is okay. He faced Oakland through a lot of fastballs. Um, it's Oakland, right? Their their highest paid player, it was highest played hit, highest paid hitter is Aledmus Diaz. So um, I think I'd be careful in terms of what I hear people might be spending on him. Yeah, Bryce Miller looked really good, but... Like you said, it was Oakland. I'm not saying he's a bad I'm a bad player. I'm just saying a bane in terms of what people are going to spend. And like I said, I wasn't a big spender on some of the other ones. Other guys that have come up, you saw Bradley go down, and um, we don't really know what's going to happen with the um, the Guardian pitchers. But um, he could be someone that um, you could might you might regret. Yeah, the Guardians call ups uh, Logan Allen and uh, Tanner Bybee. They're good pitchers and they're good prospects, but the problem there, I think, is uh, you got Tristan McKenzie coming back, and that seems to soak up a, a spot right there. And then they have guys towards the end of their current rotation who are not quite as stable, shall we say? But it is something that you have to keep in mind that they're they as good as they are. There are all kinds of financial reasons not to have them in the big leagues. If you think you have a, a guy who's already on your twenty-six man or forty-man roster, and can do the job, then there's, where's the incentive to keep playing the guy? I, I don't know. Uh, Zach Waxman, Boons, Michael Garcia of Kansas City, Willie Calhoun of the Yankees and C.J. Abrams of Washington, Pitcher Boone, uh, Dylan Dodd of Atlanta, Kenyon Middleton of the White Sox, his Baines, Paul DeJong, and Dylan Carlson in St. Louis. And you could probably pick any St. Louis free agent at this point because they're so uh, muddy in a situation. And his pitcher, Bane, Bryce Miller of Seattle. And I think... Zach, the lesson about Bryce Miller, as you said, isn't that he's a bad pitcher or a bad prospect. It's just that the situation there is going to be very fluid and he hasn't really seen big league opponents yet. It's mainly, it's mainly that uh, the price that I think he's going to cost. Right. And that's uh, always the, the final consideration is, is this guy going to be worth the money I spend? And something we didn't really talk about, but I'll just throw it in there. Uh, you have a, a background in economics, uh, to some extent, there's an opportunity cost. If you spend $300 on Bryce Miller this weekend, that's $300 you don't have when somebody better comes along later, but then you have to calibrate that against the likelihood that somebody better will come along later. Maybe Bryce Miller is going to be the next coming of Randy Johnson and everybody's going to be kicking themselves that they didn't bid $600 on him this weekend because he turned out to be so good. But 
you have to balance all of those kind of factors. I think that's the that's the lesson here. Uh, Zach, this has been terrific. Remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work. Twitter, Zach Wax, Z-A-C-K-W-A-X-X. And what about the podcast, the uh, Draft Champions podcast? Me and Mike have a podcast called the Draft Champions Entertainment Podcast. You can find that on um, draftchampionspod.com. And um, we do a podcast with the um, guy, Frank Piscani. He does a great job of producing it. It's really well produced and it's pretty entertaining. Here's some, here's Mike say some, some off, off color stuff. And um, yeah, so sub to that. Um, all the proceeds go to Frank. All right, Zach, thanks very much for doing this. Good to talk to you. I'll see you again. Uh, if, if not earlier than next year, the next draft of the Canadian A Fantasy League, and I'll try not to draft so many injured guys so I can be more competitive. Do better, Patrick. I'll, I'll try. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. That's Zach Waxman from the Draft Champions Podcast. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and my extra innings are on the way. But first, one last reminder of the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the daily call-ups report, the HQ scouting team looks at Chicago's first baseman Matt Mervis, Arizona right-handed starter Brandon Fott, Los Angeles right-handed starter Gavin Stone, Kansas City third baseman Michael Garcia, and all the other call-ups this week. And don't miss the Eyes Have It Prospect podcast with hosts Brent Hershey and Chris Blessing looking this week at prospect ages and outcomes. Well, I've mentioned a few of the resources on the site now at BaseballHQ.com, just the tip of the iceberg, really, of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, we have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, long shot suggestions in the speculator column, team injury reports, and player injury analysis in the big hurt column, and gaming strategy analysis for rotisserie, points leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats. And finally, we have that groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, there's expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer and my extra innings comment. And leading us off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Reds third base prospect Christian Encarnacion Strand and shortstop prospect Matt McLean is Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon. The Cincinnati Reds have gotten off to a moderately slow start and remain firmly entrenched in yet another rebuild at the major league level. The club does, however, have some key young players in place, including two of the top young arms in the NL in Hunter Green and Nick Lodolo, and outside of Will Myers, who is currently on the COVID IL, none of their everyday regulars is older than 27. 
The Reds also have one of the deeper farm systems in the NL, and two players look like they could be ready to contribute at the big league level sometime this summer. Third baseman Christian Oncanesian-Strand and shortstop Matt McLean have taken very different paths in their journey to the majors, but both provide an intriguing mix of power and the ability to hit for average, though both players also have a lot of swing and miss in their game. The Reds drafted shortstop McLean with the 17th pick in the 2021 draft after a standout career at UCLA. Since being drafted, McLean has struggled to duplicate the results he showed in college, but the Reds continue to promote him aggressively, and that confidence is starting to pay off. In 29 games with AAA Louisville this year, the 23-year-old McLean is hitting 324 with a 450 on on-base percentage and a 638 slugging percentage, with 7 doubles and 8 home runs and 8 stolen bases and just 105 at-bats. McLean can play both short and second base and has the potential to be a 2020 player once he reaches the majors. McLean's teammate, Christian Encarnacion-Strand, came over from the Twins last year in the Tyler Molly deal and continues to be one of the more underrated prospects in the NL. Encarnacion-Strand is a fringe average defender and does have a career whiff rate of 25%, but he also makes extremely loud contact and has power to all fields. Encarnacion-Strand had a breakout season in 2022, slashing 304 with a 368 on base percentage and a 587 slugging percentage, with 31 doubles, 32 home runs, and 114 RBIs, and 484 at-bats. He also had a strong showing in spring training, belting four home runs and 26 at-bats. He hasn't missed a beat this spring and has been red-hot for AAA Louisville, hitting 432 with a 468 on base percentage and a 955 slugging percentage, with seven home runs and 44 at-bats. While fellow rookie Spencer Steer is holding his own at third base in the majors, the Reds could use Encarnacion Strand's bat in their lineup, and he now owns a career line of 325, 383 on base, and 615 slug with 43 home runs and 615 at bats. While neither player is likely to be called up immediately, both provide nice offensive upside, and you should be ready to pounce once this dynamic duo reaches the show. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ Scouting Team member Rob Gordon has his Minor League Minute report regularly here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. And here with a look at Seattle right-handed starter Bryce Miller is Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky. Is four-seam fastball moves unlike any other fastball in baseball, according to Seattle Times staff reporter Adam Jude. Want proof? MLB.com's David Adler, not to be confused with Baseball HQ's Dave Adler, tweeted on May 3rd that after his Major League debut, Bryce Miller's four-seamer has the most rise of any Major League fastball at over 4.7 inches of rise above average. That means, according to Adam June's May 3rd Seattle Times article, that Miller's four-seam fastball has the most extreme vertical movement of any pitch in Major League Baseball. Take a second to appreciate that. Miller's four-seam fastball has the most extreme vertical movement of any pitch in Major League Baseball. But this is no accident. According to June, Trent Blank, the Mariners' director of pitching strategies, likes to flag unique fastballs that have an induced vertical break of 20 inches or more versus an average straight fastball, and those are rare. Yankees ace Garrett Cole, for example, averages around 19.5 inches of induced vertical break, and that's considered elite. 
The average major league four-seam fastball has about 16 inches of induced vertical break, according to Jude. Yet at his major league debut, Miller threw multiple pitches that registered at 20 inches or more of induced vertical break, topping out at a whopping 25.7 inches, according to Jude. Remember, the major league average is 16 inches. Even so, Miller's performance is still a very, very small sample size. That's why 24-year-old Seattle Mariners right-hander Bryce Miller, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league, and he probably is. Did we mention that by making his May 2nd Major League debut, Miller effectively jumped over AAA entirely? Obviously, Bryce Miller's above-average rise through the minors mirrors his above-average rise on his fastball. (laughs) Baseball America, in its 2023 prospect handbook, declares that Miller has the best pure stuff in the Mariners' system. Baseball America also believes that Miller's secondaries have progressed to become weapons. Adam Jude also pointed out that Miller's mixed in two different versions of his slider in his debut. Apparently, Miller is also working on a third variation of his slider to go along with his changeup, according to Jude. Definite pitching weapons. Even so, Miller's 641 ERA through his first four starts, 19.2 innings pitched at AA, might be enough to scare others away. Nevertheless, Baseball HQ's 2023 minor league baseball analyst appropriately pegs Miller as a consistently good starting pitcher who has flown under the radar despite a high strikeout rate and leading the Mariners organization in strikeouts in 2022, his first full professional season. And let's face it, we love finding consistently good starting pitchers flying under the radar, such as 24-year-old Seattle Mariners right-hander Bryce Miller. It's our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about why I miss the Vickery system in FAB. I'm old enough to remember when we didn't have FAB in fantasy leagues. Mind you, as you heard earlier, I'm old enough to remember Pontiacs. Before FAB, picking up free agents was pretty unfair. There were two common systems. The first way gave first dibs on the pool to the team lowest in the standings. That rewarded incompetence, which, as we know, should only be done in big business and politics. The second way might have been even worse. It was straight first come, first served. Various leagues had various ways to record the claims. Before the stats all went online, our league had a call-in phone, where team managers could lodge their claims on an answering machine that we operated. That way was also unfair because it rewarded guys who didn't have jobs and could spend all day looking over the USA Today stats to find diamonds in the rough. In those pre-internet days, by the way, it also rewarded guys like me who had access to wire service reports. But I swear, I never used them. One of my early leagues tried a system in which we all got together every Sunday afternoon and auctioned off the free agents. Anyone could nominate any free agent and we'd bid on them from a secondary budget of 260 units, same as the draft budget. High bid got the player. That was the fairest way of all. And if you can get your league to do it, you should. Not only is it the fairest way, but anything that gets your league mates together is good for the league. It's not that easy to implement, though, when your league mates start getting married. It's tough enough getting out to the golf course once a month, much less to the local saloon for... Another baseball draft? 
That's why the Vickery method was an ideal compromise, and dare I say it should have become the standard across the industry. In Vickery, you do the free agent bidding by blind auction, just as we do now. The difference is that the winning bid gets reduced to $1 more than the second place bid. The rationale is that if you were doing a real auction, you wouldn't bid $60 on Tommy Pham if the next highest bid was 4 So it's more realistic. You win the player by bidding the most, which is the idea. The system was invented by William Vickery, a Nobel Prize-winning economist. He was the first to use the tools of game theory to explain auction dynamics. That wasn't what he won his Nobel Prize for, but it was still a good insight. This wasn't drawn up by some ticked-off fantasy player who just won an auction for Tommy Pham, but had to pay 60 bucks. Vickery realized that bidders underbid the true value of something because they're afraid of overbidding, either paying too much, looking the fool, or both. By assuring bidders they'll pay just one more unit than someone else, they create an economic efficiency by making bidders more willing to bid closer to the actual value of the item being auctioned. The main complaint against Vickery in fantasy baseball is that it encourages higher bids because guys want to basically preemptively price enforce the auction by putting in artificially high bids. Well, that's just preposterous on two grounds. First, if nobody else tops the artificially high bid, that guy gets the player for second bid plus a buck. That's actually beneficial. But wait, people say, if you know your winning bid is going to be reduced, why not just bid 500 or 600 or 900 more than you need? Get the player and get rolled back to the 65 or 86 or 101 that it takes to top the next highest bid. And that might be true. But if two of you decide to use the same tactic, one of you bidding 600 on an $80 player and the other one bidding 590, The first guy wins the auction, but still has to pony up 591 for the privilege of rosting an $80 player. Vickery actually encourages all the players in the system to bid relatively close to their estimates of the player's actual worth, without getting zinged by a penalty if their estimate is way out of line with the general opinion. But nay, the naysayers say. If you don't know how to value players properly, that's your problem. You should be penalized for an overbid. That would be true in a live auction where if you jumped a $4 bid to 36 you might get crickets and look the fool. Or you might nominate a guy at 24 and get crickets. Believe me, I know how that feels. So the best way to bid in the Vickery system is to bid what you would in a non-Vickery system, which is to say, not bid more than you think you need. The only difference is that you get a fairer, more representative outcome if you're the outlier. Without Vickery, as we heard on today's edition of the podcast, there's nothing really rational about the bidding at all. Everybody's just guessing, not so much at the player's true value as some amount that combines the player's true value, plus what other guys might think is the true value, plus all the different team situations, plus whatever neuroses they bring to the table. We had Vickery and Tout Wars for several years, and then, for some reason I didn't quite understand, we switched back to the blind bidding process. I sure wish we hadn't. Oh, by the way, you don't have to be all that old to remember Pontiacs. I thought they went out of production maybe in the 1980s or something, but the last one rolled off the production line in December of 2009. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio almost every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 5th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 15 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest experts for this Friday full edition, Derek Carty from the Bat and the Bat X Projection Systems, and Zach Waxman from the Draft Champions Podcast. Derek is a great guest who's always thinking and innovating in the area of projections and player valuation, and Zach is a successful NFBC player who digs into the main event fab runs every Monday on Twitter. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analyst was Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Pods, Pocket Cast, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you catch your pods, please leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper and the Bus podcast. And of course, in the weeks ahead, we'll have even more top-notch guest experts, plus all the usual great stuff, our news analysis, and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Paul Sporer on next Friday's Full Edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again next Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.